Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Frank? Want to beware. Right well, here, right it now, is, right? or, or, or we're talking in general. Um, whatever floats your boat. I don't know. It's, no, uh, I'm good. I'm, 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 I'm happy as pie to be here. Good. Good. Wish we had some pie. I haven't had anything to eat today, but uh, I had a can of sardines and a burrito back around lunchtime, and I haven't had anything since then. I could go for a piece of pie. I could, hey, I could go for pie, too. Mm-hmm. I got an announcement here, public service announcement. Uh-oh. Pastor Eric Philpot from uh, Cross Life Church and Julie Bork, who is one of the people who attend that church, want folks to know that creation science evangelist Dr. Kent Hovind will be at a seminar at Dallas, Texas. This uh, uh, The subject will be creation, the flood, and the coming judgment. And the seminar will be held October 9th, this Friday, and on Saturday, on the 10th, at Mount Olive Church of Plano, Texas. Admission is free. Now, for more information, to get this information and understand clearly what it's saying, you can go to www.2peter3.com. All right? That's www.numeral2peter. Numeral3.com. I'll say it one more time. www.2peter3.com. Um, again, Kent Hovind, uh, creation science evangelist. Kent was recently released from prison after being there for, I don't know, nine years anyway, if I understand correctly, maybe ten uh, got crosswise with the IRS, jailed under unusual circumstances. High probability is that one of the reasons he was jailed is he is perhaps one of the most effective proponents, advocates for the creationist theory, where he he believes that in the Bible, and when the Bible says uh, God created heavens and the earth in seven days, he says, yeah, buddy, that's what happened. And first time I talked to Dr. Hovind back in the 1990s, first time I heard about him, up until then, I'd, you know, I believed in evolution pretty much. I just took it for granted that was a scientific thing and that was the way things operated. And I, I, I understood Genesis and the story of creation to be allegorical, somewhat mythical, but I didn't take it to be expressly true. But after I listened to Dr. Hovind, and we published a couple of articles, at least one, I don't recall, maybe two, on his presentations, I realized that the truth of the matter is nobody knows how this world started. And some people have ideas about how it started, but the the whole science, alleged science of evolution, is as much a religion as the creationism theory that we find in Genesis uh, in, in, in the Bible. 
Um, both of these rely on a certain amount of belief. And one thing about evolution, what's the word evolution mean, Frank? Oh, well, I would uh, just take it as, you know, moving from one thing to another. Yep. It means change. Okay, we change from species A to species B to species C to species D. That's the fundamental idea of evolution. And it sounds like a persuasive, a credible scientific theory. But there's a problem with it. Evolution does not explain where we found species A to begin with. You can tell you how species A changed into species B, and species B changed into the species C. But evolution offers no credible explanation of how we found species A in the first place. Well, and it only goes along to say, you know, uh, how it got to this and that and the other thing, and to a point. And then there's a missing link, and, uh, well, that's just that, and then we move along. Well, that's not really science. Missing links in science means failure. Well, it means hypothesis. It just means that this is a hypothesis. This is what we think is going on, but well, science, we don't have proof. We don't have evidence. Right. Have. Science is gone once you, once you get there. There's no more science, because science is supposed to be about what you can prove. Yeah. What you can not only prove, but duplicate. Yeah. And I don't see anybody duplicating, you know, evolution. Well... You know, one other point about it, when when I talked to Dr. Hovind, he had a host of arguments where previously I'd thought, you know, this is 20-some years ago now, 20 years ago anyway, when I first talked to Dr. Hovind. And again, I accepted the idea of evolution. It seemed scientific. He said, now, wait a second. Let's look at this. And he had a host of arguments that were eye-opening for me. You begin to realize that some of the things that I thought about creationism, I thought, well, this is an allegory, a myth of sorts, you know. No, wait a second. This is not out of the realm of possibility, and at the same time, evolution doesn't offer an explanation for creation. Mm -hmm. They can tell you, and it sounds like a credible story, but one species evolved to another. And maybe that's happened. I'm not saying that evolution is necessarily false. But there is a question as to whether or not the people of the world are subject to evolution. If you want to accept the idea that God is real in the first place, it may be that he started a planet running, and maybe maybe he allowed the species to change from one to another and evolve over time. That's possible. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. But it doesn't mean that he couldn't also have put a species down that was not subject to evolution. And that, in theory, would be us. So the main lesson in all of this is that the theory of evolution is no more persuasive at bottom than the theory of creationism. Mm-hmm. Right? Actually, you, you know, I've heard people... to choose. I, yeah. I've heard people say that, you know, and I, I tend to believe this, that it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in creation. I agree. You know, at bottom, where did you get that first living animal, that first living creature? And they're going to argue that it, they have to argue that it evolved 
out of some minerals and chemicals that were laying in the ground in the water, whatever, and perhaps lightning struck, and <laughs> it made a chemical reaction, and all of a sudden we went from an inanimate chemical or rock into something that was alive. And the next thing you know, we've got a sci-fi series. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, at least we have a happy ending if we have sci-fi. <laughs> you know, I mean, you it's know. not as if evolution has been a complete waste of time. You know, oh, a you rock know, gets hit by dancing lightning with the stars. We have uh, dancing with the stars. A too, rock so. gets hit by lightning and turns into a man. Yeah, I know. Wow, that's that's quite a story. You know, the other thing, evolution was promoted from late. 1800s, if I understand correctly, and into the early 1900s is when it really started to catch fire. And the thing about evolution, it's not just people talk about evolution as, well, it's an interesting story. It's an interesting theory, an interesting hypothesis. It, it seems scientifically valid when you at least look at it superficially. But it has great political significance. It's not just an interesting scientific theory. And it's absolutely contrary to the fundamental principles on which this nation began. This country started with the ideas in the Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the second sentence of the Declaration. And the third sentence says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's the first half of the, of the uh, third sentence. They're telling us the purpose of government as envisioned by the founder was to secure the rights given to every man, woman, and even unborn child as an attribute of their creation by God. There is no creation by God in evolution. Well, that... You know, that would make, well, there's a lot of things, actually, the faith issue and that, too, but uh, that would make, you know, would, I think, justify saying that evolution is a new and different religion. Uh, that's true, but it, and the more important point from my perspective is this. If you're man-made in God's image, as per Genesis one twenty six through 28, and you're endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights, as per the Declaration of Independence, government is your servant rather than your master. If, on the other hand, you accept the idea that you are an evolved man, not a created man, an evolved man, then you accept the status, you implicitly accept the status of being an animal. You have no rights under the Declaration of Independence. That doesn't apply. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. If you are a created man, you get unalienable rights. If you are an evolved man, there is no proviso for those unalienable rights. You are just an animal, and the only thing that distinguishes you from the cows and the pigs and the goats is the fact that you may have a firearm. And the reason no one is quite interested yet in shooting you and taking whatever you've got and skinning you to make gloves or something is because you might shoot back. But at the point in time when you people run out of your firearms, if that, is ever, if that ever takes place, how many more rights do you have than cows, chickens, pigs, and goats? 
And the answer is none. No inherent ones. Government may give you some special rights from time to time, but they give what the government gives, the government can take away. Well, and the, the, the laws are written that way. I mean, that's the whole man and other animals thing. That's exactly right. Man, uh, animals other than man. You know, yep. when they write things like that, that's what they're saying. Yep, you're an animal, and by virtue of being an animal, you have none of those God-given, unalienable rights declared in the Declaration of Independence that were the foundation for this country, the fund of the principle, the idea of this country. Each of us are endowed by a God with certain unalienable rights. That's, that principle is basically unprecedented in Western history. Prior to the, prior to the Declaration of Independence, the only people that had God-given rights were the kings, queens, sovereigns of England and France and Spain and the, the Holy Roman Empire, each of, the, each of the nations in the Holy Roman Empire. They had one sovereign in each country. They were sovereign because they had the divine right of kings. They received their rights from God. They became king in a coronation ceremony held in a church. It was not a political process. They were deemed to be chosen by God to be the one sovereign for each country. When we started this country, and the founder said, we hold this, he said, no, 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 we don't accept this, that just King George is the only one who gets his rights from God. This is extraordinary, radical political uh, uh, thought back with the Declaration of Independence. Unprecedented in the Western world, they said we all, yet they said by implication, that each of us is endowed equally by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. And as soon as they make that admission, it elevates all of us to the status of individual sovereigns rather than subjects. Well, you know, one of the, uh, we've talked about presumptions before, and, and one of the things we've talked about is, you know, if you're in court and they go, hey, what's in your pockets there? You know, and you pull out Federal Reserves, that yep. could be a, you know, a, a basis of a presumption that, hey, you are a federal person, whatever. You know, unless, debtor, of course, you... A debtor, for sure, you're sure. not paying um, your bills. You know, I unless mean, you if, rebut if it. bankruptcy court. You know, unless you, you are able to rebut it and say, oh, yeah, well, hey, the only reason I got this is from duress and blah, 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 whatever you want to say. You know, uh, presumptions can be rebutted even if they're backed up with, see, see, he has Federal Reserve notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what? You know, and you explain it, you know. But if you say nothing, well, then it's it's held. And plus, you know, this man and other animals, look what they're teaching in the public schools. They are teaching evolution as though it was, well, fact. Truth. Truth, yeah, fact. When it's a theory. <clears throat> Not and, just a theory. Right. Not just a theory, no, no. but fact. Now, so you go along, and what do they presume? Did you go to public school? Well, yes, I did. And if you don't say anything, just by them knowing or you admitting that you went to public school, they have a basis to presume that you believe in evolution. That makes you an animal because you're following that religion that you are evolved and, uh, you know, these other things don't apply to you. That's why we say man and other animals. That would yep. be you. Yep. And uh, you went to public school, and didn't you? Well, yeah, sure I did. Well, there you go. You're not dumb enough to believe in creationism, are you? Yeah, see? Well, you know? of course not. I'm intelligent, <laughs> you know. So People, there you go. Now they have a presumption that you are a man exactly or another right. animal. And the presumption is reasonable. Yeah, see? Because the vast majority of people in this country presume, uh, probably believe in evolution. 
And therefore, it's reasonable. You bring 100 people in, and 95% of them believe in evolution. It's a reasonable presumption that everybody you talk to believes in evolution. And therefore, if I'm talking to you, I can presume, well, he must, be, he must believe in evolution. He must accept the fact that he's just an animal. And you did go to public school, didn't you? Well, sure. Well, there you go. That, there you go. You know, there's a bunch of people, maybe a majority, that believe in evolution. Has to be a majority, I think, to justify the presumption. Well, not if you went to public school, because everybody who went to public school got taught evolution. But they didn't get taught creationism. No. That's just Never. food and don't pay Never. any attention to that. But if you don't believe in creationism, if you won't stand up for it, and right. you're going to say, oh, I believe in evolution, then you are an animal. And this is just extraordinarily dangerous. It's contrary to the fundamental principle on which this country was constructed. Was yeah. built. And right? here's, the, here's the confusing part. An animal named man. Yeah, you're, a, you're an evolved animal rather than a created man. You can, you can be an evolved man rather than a created man. Um, they define, you know, since I got involved in that case in Austin where we uncovered this man or other animals idea. About two years ago, I got involved in that case in 2006 and shut the government down. They were coming after us and threatening us with fines of $25,000 per day that's nine million dollars a year i've told the story a bunch of times and for the manufacture and distribution of a controlled substance which was colloidal silver all right and i was a fiduciary for trust at least some property to to uh one of the manufacturers the colloidal silver and i wound up being a defendant in the case certainly finds boy does that dollars a day does that demonstrate that the fiduciary is always responsible yeah, I understand. <laughs> Much to my surprise. I volunteered to be fiduciary, thinking it would give me standing to speak. I didn't know at the time that volunteering to be fiduciary in the trust would give me standing to be a defendant, yeah. which was sobering. It's like, holy cow. But in any case, good Lord, let me see. I read the relevant law, and both the federal law and the Texas law that define drugs use the phrase man or other animals. Which means they deem to be man an an they deem man to be an animal. If I said a horse or other animals makes perfect sense, a cow or other animals makes perfect sense, a rock or other animals makes no sense. A rock is not an animal. Right? When we say man or other animals, they mean that man is an animal. And that's completely contrary to this fundamental premise that you're a man made in God's image. And in then then by virtue of that being made in God's image, you are, cre you are created. Uh, we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It means these unalienable rights attach at the moment of your creation, not your birth. Fourteenth Amendment citizens may they get their civil rights as a function of being born or naturalized in the United States. Those of us that are citizens of stare are among the people of the states of the Union. That's where we find clearly clear application of the idea that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. It goes to venue. It goes to do you believe in evolution? Do you believe in creationism? And it's not a casual choice. 
Someone comes up to you and asks, do you believe in creationism or evolution? Of course, I believe in evolution. Well, guess what? You have just kissed your standing goodbye to be endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Bye-bye. You don't have those because you have just agreed that you are an animal man rather than a man created in God's image. You know, I couldn't find Completely different, dangerous. I mean, and and the distinction is massive. It'll determine your future, your prosperity. This is important business, not casual. I couldn't find it when I was looking through, because I I went, because once I saw it, it was like, man, I got to look at more of this and uh, the man and other animals. And then I started finding, oh, animals other than men. Yeah. uh, You know, and then it's like, okay, so this for sure was not an accident. No, and, and, you know, I'm wondering, like I said, I couldn't find it, but I'm wondering now, because knowing that, okay, just something as simple as United States has several different meanings, at least. Yep. I wonder if they have somewhere man defined. You know, that, okay, are there more than one? There seems to be. There seems to be the animal-created man and, and the animal Evolved, evolved man, man and the created man, you know, I agree. Uh, there seems to be that, but I wonder if they actually have, uh, you know, defined it in a specific Well, they've anywhere. implicitly defined it in the definition of drugs and food and medical devices. They all use the phrase man or other animals. They are saying by definition that man is an animal. They didn't say man or animals. That would indicate that there was a significant difference. We've got man over here on the right hand. We've got animals on the left hand. Man or animals. Two different classifications. When they say man or other animals, we have man as a specific example of the larger and broader classification of animals. The word other makes man an animal in in that phrase. Um, for what I, one of the things I was going to say, and it skipped, me, skipped my mind for a moment, the, we went through that case in 2006, and at the time, the Texas definition of drugs was virtually identical to the federal definition of drugs, and they both used the phrase man or other animals twice in the definition. All right? Well, they have about two years ago. I don't know when this happened. I kind of stumbled into it in the last couple of months But so far as I can understand, it was about 2013 that the state legislature changed the definition of drugs to eliminate the man or other animals phrase. And it's now, if I understand correctly, man or animals. But Mm. even so, the term man is still ambiguous. Need somebody to get a declaratory judgment on them and say, look, what do you mean by man? Do you mean a man as per Genesis one twenty six through 28, who is made in God's image and given dominion over the animals, and therefore he can't be an animal? Is that what you're talking about? Or are you still talking about an evolved man? The definition has been changed to eliminate the evidence that they had previously deemed man to be an animal. Now it's not obvious. And I haven't dug into it yet. I really need to get into it, and I just haven't gotten around to it. You know, the point is they did change the law. This was about 2006, and the last time we heard from them was, or excuse me, 2013, and the last time we heard from them in the case was 2007. I don't know why they changed the law. Uh, For a fact, I presume 
that maybe they changed the law because of the case we got into, and we said, look, you guys can't do this. You can't make me an evolved man without violating my freedom of religion. Got a First Amendment and the federal constitution, got Article 1, Section 6 of the Texas Constitution. I am entitled to freedom of religion. My religion tells me, at Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that I am a man made in God's image and that I'm given dominion over the animals and therefore I can't be an animal. I am something other than an animal. Now, how are you going to get around that without eliminating the freedom of religion? I think it's the reason they changed the law, but I don't know it to be absolutely true. Well, it may be, and, you know, the thing is, didn't they do that? Because I, I, this was something else I tried to track down that I, I never could, and, you know, therefore I have to presume that they never did anything properly. Never did what? It. Well, on the, on the Federal Reserve note, yep. there's, a, there's a little thing up at the top that says, uh, you know, good for all... Uh, legal tender for all, that's private and public, yep. public and private. It's a real short little thing. Well, it didn't used to be that short. used yep. to say things about redeemable for lawful money and stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's gone. And and I looked, I tried to find out, well, what authorized them to take that off? What kind of order, what kind of thing from Congress, what kind of something? And I never could find anything. As far as I can tell, they just took it off. It's just not there. I mean, it, whether the whatever law or rule put it there in the first place, I don't think it's been changed. Just like you know, hey, no, nothing but no thing but gold and silver can be used as tender and payment of uh, of debt. Well, that hasn't been changed. I, I we know for a fact that hasn't been changed or amended or. And I don't think they want to change it. No, and it's not gone. So why do you think they don't want to change it? They want the evidence right there in front of your eyes that if you're not using gold and silver, you're probably not in the State of the Union. They don't want to change it. They need it. They need it to continue. So when you're out there transferring your Federal Reserve notes around and you're not using gold and silver, you can't say, well, how was I supposed to know? They say, of course you're supposed to know you're not in the State of the Union. I've never read Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1. It says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. It follows, therefore, that if you're not using gold and silver, you can't be within the State of the Union. It's at least a basis for that presumption. Yeah, it is. If it, they it, were to cancel it and say Federal Reserve notes are lawful money again, well, it'd be cause for celebration. I don't care if we have gold or silver per se. What I do care is whether we have money or currency, mm -hmm. right? What is the fundamental idea behind money? What's its fundamental purpose? Do you know? To pay debts. Yeah, that's basically, that's, that's correct. And the word pay rather than discharge is important. But one of the things you'll see, you read this, and I know you've seen it. It's a medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. Okay. Real money, gold and silver coin, is a medium of exchange. Exchange of what? Value. Nope. Title. Yes. What kind of title? Oh, lawful title. Legal title. Legal same, title. Pretty much the same thing. That's not just equitable title. All rights flow from title. If you're going to declare yourself, this is a fundamental principle that I believe people need to learn and understand. 
Yeah, I know that this is a, it's a maxim of law. It's been around for centuries. All rights flow from title. Your right to live in a particular home, to live on a particular piece of property, ultimately flows from the title to that property. Even if the title isn't in your name, might be in somebody else's name, and he's leasing the property to, he's renting the property. Your right to stay on that property ultimately traces to whoever owns title to the property. Lawful money, gold and silver, is a medium that where you can exchange legal title. The gold coins and silver coins carry intrinsic legal and equitable title in them. And when we use it as a medium of exchange, I'm coming up to buy 10 acres of your land. And I'm giving you 10 ounces of gold. Just, you know, pull and pull it out of the hat. The, I am giving, when I hand over that gold coin, you get both legal and equitable title to that gold coin. And I get both legal and equitable title to the land, or at least I'm supposed to. All right? We are exchanging legal title to the ounce of gold for legal title for the land, for the 10 acres of land. When you use Federal Reserve notes, because they are loaned into circulation, legal title is still owned by whoever loaned the notes into circulation. You don't have legal title to the green pieces of paper in your wallet. You have equitable title, which means you have a right to use them. You have a right to possess them. You have a right to spend them. They are a medium of transfer, not a medium of exchange. They're a medium of transfer of equitable title because that's all you've got in the green piece of paper. Federal Reserve loaned those green pieces of paper into circulation. And by virtue of that loan, they still own legal title to those green pieces of paper. When you purchase things with a green piece of paper, in my opinion, Federal Reserve gets legal title to whatever it is you purchased, and you only get equitable title because that's all that's available to you through your green pieces of paper. You only get equitable title to the land you purchase the green pieces of paper. Your home is not your castle. It's simply your dwelling. It's, your, it's the place that you're kind of renting. You're living there like a sharecropper because you didn't get legal title to the land. You got equitable title. Same thing with your automobile. You get a certificate of title. They say, oh, there's a title here someplace. We certify that there is a title, and, and Frank, you're, you're associated with that title, but uh, they don't tell you what kind of title. And it's because, in my opinion, that you don't own legal title to the automobile. Well, and you know they that tell they you. can they can put they can haul you off or give you a ticket because you didn't fasten your seatbelt or you didn't turn your turn signal. You got to do it. Why? Because it's not your car. Here in Oregon, the owner of the car says these are the rules for using my property. When I did uh, a request from DMV. Because I got, I actually got a certified copy, and they were copies off of uh, from DMV for all all my cars because they're not new. I didn't buy them new, so I got these certified copies of the manufacturer's certificate of origin. You did, I yeah, certified copies. I get that, but even that is sort of a minor miracle from my understanding. But go ahead, I still have them too. In a, in a, <laughs> in a when in a were you able to do this? Oh, I, I'd say it was 1990, maybe. Six, okay. 1960. Do you think you could do it? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. Do you think you could do it again? I don't know. They didn't give me any trouble, really, for certified copies. I mean, they, they told me what it would cost, and I said, okay, and they sent them to me, and I, and I got them. And the thing is, though, I, I went further, and I, you know, I did all this in writing, you know, because a, a telephone calls are worthless if you're going to talk to the government. Absolutely. You know, uh, the thing is, I did it all in writing, and I asked a lot of questions about, well, you know, where's the originals? Can I have, can I see the originals? Because I realize this is a copy, it's certified, that's great, but, you know, what's it coming off of? What are you using as a blah, blah, blah? And I asked all these questions. It turns out that they said that, well, the copies are actually coming off a of microfish. Yep. And that the originals have been destroyed. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I don't that's believe I them. Su- I think it's true. I don't believe them. I think what they've done is they've bundled those originals, and they're out there floating around as commercial paper. That's possible. That's possible. But I think by destroying the title, I think the fundamental point is you can't, if who's got the title to the vehicle? It may be that you can create a title with a bill of sale. I think, I think so. I think you can. But even then, the question is, see, part of the problem, I've looked... I, I am not a big student of the of the traffic issues and the rest of that sort of thing, but what I have seen, and you've probably seen this too, when they talk about a new car coming into the state, mm-hmm. they tell you in the Texas codes, they say this car, the buyer um, gets the new car and he sends the title down to, to the Department of Motor Vehicles and the next one to get the car is a purchaser. After he's had the car for five years and he's decided, I need a new car, he goes out and he sells the car, but the guy that buys it is a purchaser, not a buyer. The buyer gets legal and equitable title, but he donates it to the state. And when he goes to sell it later on, all he has is equitable title, and therefore he only gets a purchaser, and he's the pur- there's the purchaser and the purchasee, if I understand, if I remember the, uh, the terms correctly. But he, he only has equitable title because he's donated legal title to the state. He can only sell equitable title. Even if I came up to you to buy one of your used cars and I offered you gold to pay for it, even though I may have intrinsic legal and equitable title in my gold coin, I can only purchase whatever it is you've got to sell, and whether you know it or not, as I read it, I think you've only got equitable title to sell. And that'll be true when I go to sell a car later on, a couple of years I sell it, I'll only have equitable title. And it means the next guy, I don't care if he pays me in diamonds or cow manure, all he's going to get is what I have purchased and what I am entitled to sell, which is equitable title. All rights flow from title. See, this is why, this is one of the reasons I was I went to the trouble of getting the certified copies of the you know manufacturer's certificate of origin was because you know I I looked into this and it and I don't know if I had the same ideas of equitable title versus lawful title but you know there was a there was something that i need that back in order for this car to be completely mine i agree you know and um you know and if i want to sell it i want to sell the whole thing and yeah but here's the know, thing i'll add this with it here is the thing about your certified 
certified copy. Mm -hmm. What is the date on the certification? Oh, I don't know. Whenever, whenever they sent it, you know, within a week. I understand that. To me. See that these certified copies are interesting, but they're not necessarily legally compelling. All the certified copy tells us is that back on May 16th of 1998, here was the title of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with what's going on today. Sure, you owned the car 16 years ago or whatever it was. Yeah, 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 fine. You had legal title for at least for a while before you gave it to the state. Yeah, 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 we get all that. But who's got it now? That car could have been sold six times since then hmm? without producing a certified without producing a certified copy of the original title and they've got transfers you transfer equitable title you exchange legal title if you're going to get a perfect title you get both legal and equitable title well actually <laughs> right, right to use and ownership i still have those cars by the way yeah, I'm not surprised. You know, I still are have, they up on blocks? How no, many not all. Uh, well, one ought to be, but uh, it's it's just sitting there on flat tires. But yeah, I have. Well, actually, I don't have Only one of them. Flat on one side, right? No, they're they're all flat. But uh-huh. you know, that's what I mean. It ought to be up on blocks. But I haven't sold those. And you know, the same the same problem comes with land. You know, when yep. you buy land, you know, it's it's the same thing. And and it's kind of I went through this thing updating land patent and all that because in in land the land patent is the is the manufacturer's certificate of origin yep you know and uh i came to the now i tried some things and they didn't work and i i've tried other things that i don't know if they're right or not because i haven't had a chance to test them but my take on it now was always well update the um the land patent which i think is important that you 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 file something to say, listen, you know, land patent, whatever, whatever, you know, it's mine now. This portion of it is mine uh, now, and you claim that. You know, you claim it, you bought it, you've got a bill of sale. And, uh, you know, one thing I did, I did go through the regular titling process, but I also had the person that sold me the property write me a handwritten receipt saying that I paid in full without putting any... You know, but did he say for all rights, title, and interest? No, you know, no, I, I can don't pay think in so. full. I can pay in full for uh, a ride in a taxi cab. Doesn't mean I own the taxi. No, but and and I think I did put the uh, the legal description down. So mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. You know, so the thing about it or not, did the but previous did you buy it from someone who'd already paid for it with Federal Reserve notes? Because my the way I understand this, that implies to me that if he paid for the land with Federal Reserve notes, legal title defaulted to the Federal Reserve, and there's only equitable title left from then on to be swapped, I don't care what you got. Get any kind of land patent you want. If the guy you bought it from only had equitable title to sell, that's all you could purchase from him. It's not clear to me that you can make a claim on legal title, but it may be that you can do so. No, sure how you can, can you get? How can you get legal title to property? Well, that uh, you know, that's the question, isn't it? Well, I think the I think the answer is this: I know that legal title will go from person to person by descent. Meaning, if your daddy owned legal title and he left it to you in the will, you get legal title. 
If your grandfather owned legal title and he left it to daddy, daddy can then leave it to you. You get legal title. All right? It falls by descent in wills. And what that means is if you can find a family farmer whose granddaddy acquired the land, I don't know. You know, you'd have to go back a ways. You've got to go back probably prior to nine, maybe prior well, to 1971, maybe prior to 1948. Uh, certainly, if it's prior to 1933, in my opinion, he's got legal title. If you can show that great-granddaddy bought this land for 50 pieces of silver back then, and he gave it to your dad, and your dad gave it to you, or he gave it to your neighbor, John Smith. All right, he left it to us, and John is now getting on in years, and he's willing to sell the land. Well, John is a powerful and even dangerous man. He may not know it, but he actually owns legal title to his land. These family farmers, I think this is one of the reasons why the government has essentially waged war on family farms. They don't want you passing this land down by inheritance. You can transfer legal, or you can exchange, you can give legal title to the land to your descendants. And they could, if I could find a family farmer that had owned his land for 70, 80 years, something like that. I don't know how long I'd have to go back. It might be a lot less than that. But if I could find that family farmer who had paid, in fact, you could probably do this all the way up into 1968 because they still had silver certificates in circulation. Mm -hmm. All right. So probably if you could find land where it was clear that the guy you're buying it from or his descendants, but the original, the original buyer paid for it with gold or silver, if you have any evidence to support that contention, all right, he's still got legal title. Get that family farmer and get some of that land. Now your home is your castle, in my opinion. All right. You got the land. You got not just equitable title, which makes you nothing but a glorified sharecropper. You have legal title, which means you have control. You have real ownership of the property. That is something worth doing. Well, there it are is. Fewer and fewer of those family farmers around, but you know, there's still some out there. You know, I got a I got a letter from both the uh, Department of the Interior, and it wasn't you know it was solicited. I mean, I asked a lot of questions and I wanted answers, and I just kept at it. This went on for years, and uh, I got a letter from both the Department of the Interior and the State of Oregon, and they're very similar letters, and they basically say we have no interest in your land. Now. What okay. I was doing was eliminating suspects, basically. Okay, well, yeah. look, maybe I don't have, uh, you know, but is it you? Do you? And they say, no, it's not them. Okay, so fine, it's not you. Well, okay, at that point, I, I realized, you know what? Okay, it doesn't matter if it's me. If it's not you, then who the hell are you to come around and say, I got to have this and you got to do that and blah, 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 They blah, may blah. be agents. For whoever well, has they the said interest. They, they, they may not have the interest, but they may be agents for whoever has the interest. Well, okay. They, I mm -hmm. suppose they could, but they said they Ooh. have no interest. You know, so... Yeah, I, I get that. that. They have no interest. I get that, but still, you know... And that, that's like, not like, not interest as in we don't have any concern, we don't have any... I asked them specifically... You got any ownership? You got any this? You got any claim? You got any liens? You got any... You know, on and on and on. I get that. And they said, we have no interest, meaning we don't have any claim at all. Yep. 
And they both said it. So I figured, hey, United States and Oregon got no claim. You know, and my old so thing was does? I wanted to find out, well, you who know, I, I wanted to claim, right? But it's like, well, okay. Then I started realizing, well, wait a minute. If you don't have it, you don't have any interest. I at least have an equitable interest here. Yep. And uh, so who are you? You know, I mean, okay, so I have some interest. You have no interest. Who are you coming to me to say you want anything? So, Well, see, this is the thing. This fundamental idea that all rights flow from title, it opens an interesting door. First, if you can grasp the idea and really get hold of it. When you buy an automobile, what do you buy? Do you buy the, the steel and the engine and the tires and the plastic and the windows and the rest of that sort of thing? You do not. You buy the title. The piece of paper is what is being bought initially and later what is being purchased. You buy the title, and that piece of paper gives you the right to drive that particular car. You're not buying the car. You're buying the title to the car. Same thing with the land. Man, you just if described you want our to argue economic that, system. Pardon me? You just described our economic system. Yeah, I know. Because that's well, all I think I, commercial paper basically is just title. Bunch of titles running around. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. But again, then you get into what kind of title. Then you get into trust relationships and the idea of divided title, where one guy's got legal title and the other guy's got equitable title. Got a trust relationship, but whoever's got legal title has real control and ownership <laughs> Some, of the vehicle. Somewhere the law of fraud has to come in, too, because... I don't know it, that it is. Well, maybe. You got you 50 know, but, guys with the same, you know, we 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 all claim, we we all have paper that shows we own the same interest in the same thing how can that be somebody sold us a bill of goods that's true that's true that's but i've told this story before i used to you know some of you might remember me saying this before but this was to me it offered insight not proof but evidence that the federal reserve owns legal title whatever is purchased with its with its green pieces of paper. Ancient principle, whoever owns the money owns whatever the money is used to buy. If I steal $1,000 from you, Frank, and I go out and buy myself a new flat screen TV, all right, the way this worked historically is if I stole your money, they might not be able to return this flat screen TV, but the flat screen TV is now yours. It was purchased with your money. You get it. I was the thief who stole the money. I bought that, but Ultimately, it reverts to you because you're the guys who own the money, right? This is where we have golden. But fundamental principle, whoever owns the money owns whatever it's used to buy. Well, when you get your Federal Reserve notes, if it's true that the Federal Reserve, because they're loaned into circulation, they're not spent into circulation, they're loaned, it means I lend you a pen, all right? Same idea. I lend you a pen. You write the great American novel. Uh, when you get done with it, I want to cut on the novel. Why? Because you used my pen and my ink to write it. I just loaned that pen to you. I didn't give it to you. You didn't have title of the pen, or at least not legal title. In the sake in, the, in this analogy, I have the title, the legal title of the pen, and you just borrowed it. It's the same thing with the green pieces of paper. You don't own those green pieces of paper. They were loaned into circulation. You don't own them until that debt is repaid, and it probably never will be. Um, <clears throat> where was I going with this? I had something I wanted to say about title, and it says now it has slipped 
away from me while I'm trying to explain my explanation. That happens a lot. <laughs> you know, you try to say, okay, i got to explain this. Let's see, you got it to point one, point two, and then what the heck was my point number? That was what I wanted to say, point number three, and I can't remember what it was. Um, I can't, you know. Oh, here's, my here's mind where I was okay. going. Here was where I was going with this. I used to process credit cards when I was publishing a magazine back in the 1990s. And I was just publishing the magazine out of my home. All right. Just small operation. But it was convenient to take credit credit cards from people who subscribe and it was helpful in one thing or another. And I had to apply for the privilege of taking credit cards and they sent somebody out to the house to take a look and see if I looked like I was credible or if I looked like I was some sort of a thug. And they said, We don't care that you look like a thug, we still think you're credible and so they let me process credit cards. But while we were doing it, they sent a woman out there. Look over the little facility, you know, look over the dwelling, the place, and rest of it. All right, fine, you look like you're halfway honest. So they let me process credit cards. While we were talking, she had to be there half hour, 45 minutes, something like that, process all the paperwork and shoot the breeze. And she, on her own, I didn't ask her the question, on her own, she just volunteered at one point that all credit card transactions go through the Federal Reserve. And I didn't understand this. This would go back to about 1993, probably. But it stuck in my mind. And what was the reason? Why does the Federal Reserve care whether or not? Why do they want to be bothered with a list of everything you bought with your MasterCard? Or you purchased with your MasterCard? Do they want to know when you're going to town to buy some more ketchup and toothpaste and, and toilet paper? Why would they waste their time collecting that kind of information? The only way it makes sense to me to this day, and it's just my speculation, is because the Federal Reserve wants a list of everything that's been bought with legal title to its Federal, Re to its federal Reserve notes. When you pass that note, you only have equitable title in the note. You only get the equitable title to the property that you purchased with the note. But the Federal Reserve still owns legal title to the note, and under the principle that whoever owns title is gets whatever is gets the title whatever's purchased with that with that with that with that currency you get equitable title to the flat screen tv but the federal reserve gets legal title to it and if that were true and i can't tell you it's god's truth i can just tell you that i've been ruling this idea around in my mind for over 20 years and i believe it's true it's part of the reason why the fed why you're dealing with the government, they say, we have no interest in the property. Yeah, they don't. But who does? I'm willing to bet it's the Federal Reserve, and I'm willing to bet they are functioning as an agency of the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve has legal title to your property. If it was purchased with Federal Reserve notes, they are the real owner and controller. And when the Fed comes in, kicks in the door, and says, we're taking your computer, Frank, and you say, you can't take my computer. And they say, do you have a receipt for it? Did you buy it? And you say, yes, I do. And here it is. And you produce the receipt. And it's got a dollar sign with a single vertical line going through it. Not two vertical lines, which was for lawful money. Single vertical line, which was for legal tender. Fiat currency. What have you just proved? You have proved you don't have legal title to the computer. Well, let's take this one. You prove that you don't own it, and they can take it. Let's take this one step further with something topical that happened, you know, because it's in the news again. It's talk of the town once again is gun control. 
Yeah. And everybody talks about, wait a minute, what part of the Second Amendment don't you get? Shall not be infringed. Well, obviously mm-hmm. they've infringed on the Second Amendment horribly over and over again. You know, it's all these gun laws. It's not all exactly. an infringement. It's infringement where? Well, the United States of America, but it might be more. What if they figure, well, hey, everybody out there bought these guns with Federal Reserve notes. Mm-hmm. Those are our guns. Yep. We'll regulate them any way we want. That's why. I agree with you 100%. That's the reason why they can regulate. And one of the other things that flows from it, where can you use Federal Reserve notes? Well, in the not, not in district. The, not the Constitution the says... Constitution says no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. There's no proviso in Article One, Section Ten, Clause One for the use of Federal Reserve notes within the states of the Union. And the implication is if you're using Federal Reserve notes, you must be in a different venue. Something territorial and or and or a state of the United States rather than a state of the United States of America. Two different venues. What they're doing with their gun control regulations, in my opinion, are completely legal. All right? But they're only legal in the territories and or districts. If you can control your gun and say, look, this gun is only within a state of the union, now but, you've got a problem. They have a problem. They well, can't get at Their regulations don't control. The Second Amendment applies to the states of the Union. doesn't apply to the territories. Well, doesn't but then apply they to say, the districts. But how'd you buy that gun? <clears throat> that was the other thing. The <laughs> registration is going to be the giveaway on that. How do you get around it? Make your own guns. That's exactly right. And there are people that are doing it. They've got, they put out 80% receivers for right. AR-15s. Um, uh, you can get it for oh, AK's uh, got 911s. Mine, uh, you yep. can make your own lower receiver, which is deemed to be the gun. And once you do, now you are not, in my opinion, you are not, you're going to have to back it up with some other stuff. Actually, if they come looking for it, you're going to have to also say, not only did I make this gun, but it's made within a state of the union. Well, I'm standing within a state of the union. It's only being used in the state of the union. I own legal title to the gun. I don't just own equitable title. you got to do a real dance with this thing. But if you're ready to do the dance, I think you can hold them off. Well, and I think you'd win because a guy already did win, and I forget the names, and you probably heard about it. Uh, I and I I might get parts of the story wrong, but think if, and think if you can remember this: a guy in I believe it was Utah was making machine. Uh, he was either making fifty calibers or he was making machine guns, mm-hmm. and he was making them in his yeah. you know garage. Yeah, and you know the ATF got wind of this and. Uh, mm-hmm. They said, oh, boy, you know, we're getting this guy. So they did. They arrested him. He was found guilty and sent to prison. Well, he appealed. And he won his appeal because the appeals court ruled that, hey, uh, the ATF doesn't have any jurisdiction because there is no interstate commerce uh, involved here. He made it. He used them. They were in his possession. Uh, he never left the, you know, he never went anywhere else. So yep. there you go, and they they let him go. Now he stayed in prison because while he was there, he contracted with one of his honest good friends in the jail to have his brother go kill the judge that you know got him in incarcerated. That's a no no. Yeah, they frown on that. Yeah, they do, and he's yeah. still in jail. I think he's going to die in jail, uh, or already has. 
but uh, this was a while back, and you know they ruled on that without even uh, you know getting into the because they they really don't want to give up the if if in fact we're right about the whole district or territory thing, yep. they don't want to give up that. Uh, no. That's a secret. They they, they don't, don't want to tell. They'll let up. you go before they don't even want to admit it. Right. No. They no. don't. It's not just a question of. Suppose we came up and we said, here's the way you guys are operating. We get it. We go to federal court and we say we want a declaratory judgment that this whole thing is fraud and we want an injunction against the government proceeding under the presumption that we're in a territory or that we are evolved men rather than men made in God's image. We can go up there and get those things. Is the government going to do that? (laughs) Even if you had a proper legal argument, do they dare the whole system? would fall apart and collapse. And in the resulting chaos, I don't know what would happen. I mean, the government would be, would be wiped out. What are they going to do if they can't treat us like animals? What are they going to do if they have to presume we have legal title to our property? What are they going to do if the Federal Reserve goes bankrupt? Who gets legal title to the property then? And it may be that if they do, we can make the claim, say, this is my house. I have legal title to this house. And no one else can come up and say to the contrary. Why? They don't have title. They can't produce it. They burned it if it was, a, if it was an automobile. Yeah, that's, You know, this is one of the things about it. You might be able to create legal title to your cars. See, that was my thought, is that, well, look, if you did destroy it, you don't have it, and I do have a certified copy, and I also have, you know, the other title, certificate of title, yeah, and, I have, a, and I have a bill of sale. The bill of sale. Now you might be talking. Well, gee, I've I've got everything. It may be that you could make your own legal title to the property. And once you put this up and put it in legal notice in the newspaper, say, I've created legal title. You have to do the study, what has to be done. I own legal title to the automobile, such and such and such and such. Put the notice in the newspaper for however long it has to be to constitute legal notice. And anybody who claims legal title, notify me. And they're not, what are they going to do? The state knows the legal title has been destroyed. Are they going to come up and say, no, we own that vehicle? Once you make a statement under oath that you own it, who is going to make a statement under oath that you don't? Well, that's Because right. by making that statement, by, by arguing with you, they're going to have to admit they've been running a scam. Well, yeah, let's take this and out it, in the open. Come on, let's yeah, talk about let's it. let the jury decide <laughs> the issue and wait until the jury finds out. You mean, you mean I don't own my Cadillac? Yeah. I don't own, I don't own any of the vehicles I've been you buying for the last hey, 40 or 50 years. Let's take it further. You don't own the, the, the shirt on your back. Exactly. Unless you made it. You know, I mean. Unless like, you made it. Why is, why is it important to make it yourself? Well, because then you're the author. You're the uh, you're the creator. You're, yeah, exactly. Genesis one one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And again, I talk about it once in a while. But for me, this is just a profound insight. First verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It tells us the same way that the author is entitled to copyright for a book, and the inventor is entitled to patent on whatever machine he's made and products he's made, right? The creator owns perfect title. He owns both legal and equitable title. It is by virtue of being the creator that he becomes God, right? 
When he created something, he owns it. And the Bible says, that's verse 1, they're making it clear, God created the heavens and the earth. He owns the whole shebang by virtue of creation, and he can do whatever he wants with it. It's the act of creation that makes him God. Similarly, if you create a book, you get the copyright. If you create a, a rifle, you own it. You're not purchasing it from someone else. You created it. Your title is not being compromised by use of Federal Reserve notes. You created that. Now you're the owner. You have legal and equitable title so long as you stay within a state of the union, in my opinion. But this is that creation, that act of creation gives you the opportunity to to claim legal well, title and equitable title, but legal legal in particular. I agree. I agree. Uh, I, you know, I thought about, you know, because the other week you mentioned making your own car. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's funny because, mm -hmm. you know, I had actually thought about that because I've got, I've got enough car parts around here that I could put one together, and I got a welder, and, you know, and I, but then I thought, well, yeah, but, and then I didn't go any further checking the rules about how to make. I, I knew a guy who made his own motorcycle, and uh, man, he had. Because, of course, he went to the state and wanted to, uh, you know, get a license plate and all that for it. And, man, he he had to go outside of Oregon. He had so much trouble with uh, licensing, making his mm -hmm. own. Because mm -hmm. they're like, well... Uh, making what, his own what? Motorcycle. Okay. And it was like, well, what year's the frame? Well, what year's the motor? Well, what year's the, you know... <laughs> they just gave him so much hassle that he went to yeah. another state that made it easy. I've seen someone made a motorcycle with a wooden frame. You might have seen that. Yikes, no. Yeah, yeah he put it together, I don't know, with two-by-fours or two-by-sixes, something like that, and bolted the engine and the wheels and whatever else in place, but he made the frame out of wood, which, wow. you know, a little bit silly to me. But regardless, if you can take a firearm, and the way the law reads is you buy these lower receivers that are only 80% complete. Mm -hmm. And you got to bend You have them, to right? finish the remaining 20%. I think you actually they what they do is they give you a a block and you got to put it in like some sort of vice sort of thing and bend it mm -hmm. into shape. Mm -hmm. And Maybe then, it you know, it depends on whether what kind of what what kind of a lower receiver you have like well, the they're giving you these un unfinished Receivers. But they're eighty percent complete. Right, but they're not complete, so they're not That's really exactly receivers right. yet. My point is that if an if a rifle is not complete, mm -hmm. uh, eighty it can be eighty percent complete, and it's still not a rifle subject to government right. regulation. If you complete the remaining twenty percent, you are deemed to be the creator. It might follow. Not necessarily, but it might follow that if you create the last 20% of the automobile, you might be deemed to be the creator of that new and improved automobile. You got somebody, yeah, I got a, you know, I got a car here, it's a, it's a Chrysler or whatever, and it was only 80% complete when I got it, but I added this, that, and the other and put some Ford headlights on it, and I don't know what all we did. But now I added the last 20%. Is that enough to qualify? As you having created the 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 you know the the particular machine because when Ford builds a new car, Ford is buying engines and wheels and transmissions and whatever. It's not manufacturing every piece of equipment that's on there. No. Every one of them, that engine, 
was probably purchased with Federal Reserve notes. And the engine, in theory, belongs legal title to the engine. If the balance of the theory that we're advancing here, if that's true, the engine, technically, legal title belongs to the Federal Reserve. And the tires on the wheels were paid for with Federal Reserve notes. So technically, each of the tires they purchased belonged to Federal Reserve. And the seats and windshield and whatever were purchased from different sources with Federal Reserve notes. And in theory, the Federal Reserve owns legal title all of the components, but... When Ford assembles all those components into a brand-new Ford 150 pickup truck, Ford gets the manufacturer's statement of origin. Even though he used component parts that were owned by the Federal Reserve, or even though Ford used component parts owned by the Federal Reserve, they still get to claim legal title. They get the manufacturer's statement of origin. Because they have taken these parts and created a whole out of the parts that is greater than just the sum of the parts. They get to claim the, the act of creation, the title. This is part of the reason why intellectual property is such a hot item in the law. You know, when you create things, for example, who owns legal title to this radio program? It's, it's one of those things where If push comes to shove, you and I might argue who owns legal title to this radio program, but it would be one of us or both of us who owns legal title. That makes you a dangerous man. You have standing at law, not just in equity. If you own legal title to your land, legal title to your car, legal title to you, you write, therefore, you know, I I write, therefore I am. I own legal title to what I've written. Now you got a problem. You want to bring me into court? I have standing to contend in a court of law where otherwise, if you don't have legal title, all you have is equitable title, you only have standing to get into a court of equity. Purpose of a, of a court of law is to determine legal rights. All rights flow from title. If you want to get into a court of law, you've got to make an express claim that you hold legal title to whatever it is that's at issue. And if you don't make that claim, in my opinion, they're going to say, okay, he's just in equity. Right. You go into a court of equity, the judge can rule any way he wants for any well, reason that he thinks is appropriate. And they if he will doesn't presume. like the color of your eyes, he can rule against you. And they will in a court pre- of law, he's bound by the law just like everyone else does. Well, and they will presume that. Okay, they will presume that you just have equity, and like you said, gee, that's a reasonable claim because, you know, 99% of the people that come in here only ever have, you know, equitable. Equity. uh, They don't even know what it is. But that's all they they have, and we know it, and, uh, you know, so we'll just presume you do. And until you could stand up and say, oh, no, I have this. Now, and that's whether you can prove it or not, because once you say it, now they got to say, no, you don't. Oh, really? I don't prove it. They've got to say it under oath. Yeah, and they they've got, got to, to put you know, someone on the stand. If I say I own this house, this land, this desk, this computer, if I say it under oath, all right, which I'm not going to say if I don't believe it's true. I'm not going to lie about it. But if I say it under oath, somebody else is going to have to stand up and say, no, you don't. And here's why. <laughs> and, here's <laughs> and they're going to have yeah. to explain the scam. Yeah, and here's and why. In front of a jury and on the record. Yeah, here's why. That's the problem. That's the whole problem. Tell me. No, they aren't going to do that. They don't mind lying under oath, but uh-uh. it's the uh, and here's why part that they don't want to get to is, uh, you know, because it's it's true, though. Because, yeah, people don't. This is one thing that I actually I didn't get right away either about 
you know, everybody goes, well, you know, I'm innocent until proven guilty, and they have the burden of proof. Well, yeah. the burden of proof shifts. The burden of proof shifts back and forth, depending on who says what. Yeah. It might start off one way that, yeah, okay, uh, you know, somebody has the burden of proof. But that can shift. And when it shifts, you better be ready either to demand that they prove it, or you better be ready to prove it yourself, you know, which depending on which way it shifts. But it can shift. The burden of proof shifts throughout any kind of proceeding. And and maybe I, I haven't heard that before, but I know that it shifts... I haven't heard it as a standard, all right? Well, yeah, that's kind of true. It depends on what you're saying. I, it may be correct, but I know it has. I know the burden of proof shifts if you make an affirmative defense. Yeah, yeah. An affirmative defense is a confession. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And very few people appreciate that and say, "Well, we're going to make an affirmative defense." It sounds like a good deal. The the insanity defense is one example of an affirmative defense. Mm-hmm. The insanity defense says I was crazy when I killed the guy. Okay, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. But, but you, you have admit you admitted that you killed the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right? right. The affirmative defense is first and foremost a confession. It says, yeah, I did what they charged me with, but there was reason for it. There were extenuating circumstances. Man, this sounds like traffic court. This is everybody who comes in there. I'm, I, I sit there with my head down shaking it after a few minutes anymore because these are people who come into the court the very few people that come in to fight their ticket yep and when they get the chance to say their piece they get up there and they basically say well yeah but yeah what what do you mean yeah. well yeah but you just you just admitted and you can almost see the judge's eyes roll yep and then and maybe just, grin a little bit too. Right, you just gave it away, Sonny. Know, let you let go ahead, finish up. Yeah, yada yada, yeah, blah blah blah. That's a nice story, you know. And and most of the judges are nice, and they'll let these people finish their stories. But when they do, it's doink. You're guilty. You know, that's a nice story. You're guilty. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Well, I can't say nobody, but maybe one or two people out of all the cases I've watched have actually stood up and just denied it. No, that's not true. Uh-huh. I didn't do that. Yeah. Prove that. Yep. <laughs> you don't know. Maybe once or twice. But most everybody, it's the yeah, but defense. Yep. Yeah, I did it, but I've got a really, defense. I got a great reason. Wait till mm-hmm. you hear this, Judge. I bet you've never heard this one before. Oh, but I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, I probably hear it about once a day. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I I just sit there going, oh, my gosh, you know, I never realized it before. You know, but that's what happens in traffic court. And the sad thing, it's what happens in most cases. You figure, yeah, well, traffic court, so what? Big deal. You get a fine. That's the big deal. Well, it happens and people go to jail also. You know. And part of the reason for this, again, I think you're going into a court of equity, although it may be an administrative tribunal. Um, in either case, you're at best a subject, right? You don't have legal rights. If you don't have, if you don't have legal titles or whatever it is in question, uh, the judge gets to decide the case in equity, and he rules strictly according to his own conscience. He does whatever it is he thinks is right. 
And if you look like you are the mayor's son, he's going to say, I think we can give him a pass. And on the other hand, if you look like you run a radio station, I say, I think we need to to find this guy or maybe jail him. The judge gets to do whatever he wants. He's not bound by law in a court of equity. He can listen to law. He can be persuaded by it if he cares to, but he's not bound by it. He gets to do whatever he wants. And that's why equity is so incredibly dangerous. This is where we get the reports of judges making their own law. They're in equity, and they can. And no one's going to stop them because they are in equity. They get to rule according to their own conscience rather than the law. So is that bound by the law? Is equity like the same or similar to admiralty? I wouldn't say it was the same or similar. My understanding with admiralty is that one of the first things that has to be done is somebody's, and I haven't studied admiralty, I don't, uh, but my understanding, superficial understanding, is one of the first issues is who owns legal title to the ship. All right? And that's one of the first issues to be decided in admiralty when they're talking about ships that have had some sort of a problem at sea. Who owned legal title? And then they go from there. And if nobody claims legal title, well, that's one thing. If someone claims legal title, they're going to maybe have to prove it whether they can salvage, whether they whatever's going on here. But my understanding is is admiralty starts with legal title. It's one of the fundamental questions. Well, there seems to be a lot of similarities between equity and and well and admiralty. Well, one thing about admiralty also is, you know, the guy uses his own judgment. He's the captain. The yeah. guy sitting in 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 judgment in admiralty is the captain, and his word's the last word. And Yep, you know the law doesn't. But really where is he? Where is he when his word is the last word? Well, he's not on the land. That's right, and he's probably out at sea. He's outside the jurisdiction of the courts, the states, whatever. It's a special kind of deal. It's almost like he's in outer space. Who has jurisdiction over the venue of the, of the ocean? All right, and it's part of the reason for admiralty. It's not the only reason, but it's part of it. Things happen at sea. Nobody's got venue. What are we going to do here? Well, it's part of the reason they're going to go looking for legal title, if I recall correctly. I've looked at it. Well, and you know that's the ten years anyway. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that admiralty has crawled its way onto the land. Yeah, I agree. And in a lot of ways, that could be true. I mean, it, do you think it's true? In a, yeah, I do, in a way, actually. And I don't know if it's the strict sense of admiralty, the way it was processed out on the ocean, uh, or some uh, hybrid of admiralty. But yeah, it seems to be what they're running within what we would call the territories or districts. I mean, it may be, they're almost but treating it like it's the ocean. The State Bar had a seminar on admiralty law. State Bar of Texas, back in the 1990s. This would go back to about 1995, thereabouts. I don't recall clearly. But they produced a three-ring binder that was probably three inches thick with copies of all the paperwork and speeches delivered by everybody at that seminar, and there was a lot of them. Right? It was, it was jammed full. It might have been four inches thick. It was a big, thick, and I bought a copy of that from the State Bar um, I don't know. It might have cost me 150 bucks. I don't remember what they're selling. For, I think I, I bought, bought that too. Because I've been hearing people talk about admiralty, admiralty, admiralty. I read that entire book, and no one up there speaking, no attorney speaking at the state bar seminar, came anywhere close to suggesting that admiralty had come on the land. 
Okay. All right. Not that I was able to read and understand back then. If I were to read it again today, you know, I might I might see things that I missed back then. But I read that intentionally. I never found a trace of it. The trace of that that idea that I could identify. I am skeptical of the claims that admiralty has been brought onto the land, but they may be true, and I may be. You know, well, I'm and and like mistaken. I say, you know, it may be some sort of hybrid of admiralty and equity and uh, whatever else. Because I mean, what they did, if they did, what we think they <clears throat> did, is kind of a new kind of deal. I mean, you know, these are not these are not the days where you just march in and say we're here, we're taking over, or we'll kill everybody. I mean, these guys were slick. No, I know they pulled a real fast one here. And they haven't just pulled a fast one. They've pulled a long, persistent one. Yeah. All right. Meaning that they set this system up to deprive people of their rights. And when they did, there'd be somebody be smart enough to see that they made a mistake. And what did they do? They learned from the mistake, and they papered over that particular loophole in their scheme. And somebody else spotted another loophole, and they papered that one over and so on. And what you wind up with, is a scheme that's been tested over a period of decades, maybe even a century or more, and it's slick. Yeah, it is. I mean, you got to be. It has been tested and evolved to a point where you have to be very shrewd and possibly blessed uh, to to actually perceive what's going on here. And even if you do get to perceive it, assuming that some of the ideas that I'm advocating that I that I get into and run thing another and you do, assuming their ideas are right, they are so hard to prove. Because you gotta have wonder in your own mind, am I right or am I just uh, leaping to false conclusions? You know, you have to maintain a certain amount of skepticism about your own ideas and your own conclusions. And that's the survival characteristic to my mind. It's one of your first forms of self-defense is you got to be sure that you don't start buying your own BS. All right? You have to take it. Even the ideas that, that I sit here and I, and I, in my own mind, I think this is, I think, I think I'm onto something that may be God's truth. I have to sit here and be wary at all times that I don't fool myself into believing things that are just flat out mistaken. That's not easily done. No, no, it isn't. Uh, but you, you know, it, it's especially hard when you also, on the same, while you're, you know, being cautious, you have to keep an open mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, so it's kind of a balancing act. Like, yeah. okay, I got to keep an open mind here, but I, I, I don't want to start. You know, I don't want to get sucked into some idea that just sounds good that you know isn't real, isn't true, and uh, it's tough. It, it's a tough balancing act, uh, really. And that's why, you know, I think it takes a long time to, to yeah, get a grip on, you know... Uh, you don't fix this up when you're 20 years old. A loose grip on what's going on anyway. Uh, you uh, don't really understand. You can't at an early age. No, I don't think most, most people could. Uh, no, I don't think so either. You're going to have to be a real genius or extraordinarily blessed to understand the kinds of ideas we're talking about at a young age. This is something that comes to you later in life, <laughs> after you've beat your own head on enough walls. Yeah. When you begin to say, you know, some of these walls, I don't think they're made out of tissue paper. I think they're made out of concrete. 
You won't believe this, but I think these walls <laughs> yeah. I've been beating my head on, I'm telling you, I'm getting a flat spot here. I think they're made of, they told me it was tissue paper, you know. Yeah, and, and that's to some conclusions. And that's it, too, and and that's a hard thing. You know, it sounds easy when you're explaining to somebody, well, you know, once you beat your head on the wall and, and it starts to bleed, you know, just stop doing that and maybe try something else. That sounds really easy, and everybody goes, well, yes, duh, you know, of course. But it's easier said than done. Yeah, I know. Because here we are as a nation beating our head on the wall, and I think the blood is flowing pretty good, and, and we just keep doing it. You know, we all, and we all keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting something different to happen, and it never does, and we just keep doing it. Let's march on Washington again. Let's, you know, let's do this again. Let's just keep doing the same things. You know, it's like some of the tax arguments. Well, yeah, he went to jail, but uh, I'll make the same argument, and I won't. Yep. That's not really reasonable. You know, I mean, well, you never know. There's, you know, I mean, some people don't go to jail. Well, that's true, but generally they. Some don't. of this stuff works. Some but of it, it doesn't yes, necessarily but work a hundred percent of the time. No, it doesn't. It's always a crapshoot. It is, and and yep. usually somebody makes a mistake somewhere, mm-hmm. or the government takes it personally and says, "We're going to get this guy no matter what. I don't care if he's right. I don't care if he's wrong. We're going to hang him because he's been a real thorn in our side, and therefore, you know." We're going to give him a lot of trouble here. Well, and We're that's not true. Let him win no matter what. And that's and and like you said too, you know, just to get this, you've got to be blessed. And God is on His throne, and if He doesn't want you got, you ain't getting got, regardless of what the government wants. You know. And sometimes, I mean, I spent most of a year in a slammer one time, and I had no doubt from the beginning it was where the good Lord wanted me to be. I was never convicted of a crime, but I did spend 344 days in a level 5 maximum security jail. All right? There are passages in the Bible, and I can't quote this exactly. I can't tell you where it is, but most of the people listening will remember seeing it. Where, where the good Lord is telling us in the New Testament, says, don't worry about what you're going to say when you go to court. God will give you the words. Okay? And... Some people say, well, okay, I'm not going to get ready. I'm just going to depend on the good Lord to give me the words. <laughs> but he doesn't say, I'll give you the words to get you out. Right. He says, I'll give you the words to witness for me. Right? And it may be that the good Lord is more satisfied, and then he's going to say, okay, now you're going to jail. <laughs> and you can witness for me in the jail. Well, yeah, and it only... He may have more need for you in the slammer than he does outside on the street. And that's true. Yeah, you don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card from the good Well, and you never Maybe know. you're going bye-bye. And you never know. You know, during that year you were in jail, You, if you weren't in jail, you could have got run down by a bus. Yeah, I understand. You know, anything could have happened. I mean, you know, it could be any oh, it was it was a great blessing. I've said for years, I said from the beginning on this thing, I learned more while I was in that jail than I did at any other one-year period in my life. It was a... You know, just an extraordinary educational experience for me. I learned an enormous amount in that jail. I don't want to go back, but it was a blessing. And I told people after I got out of there, if I'd known how much I would learn, I would learn in that prison, in that jail, I would have fought my way in years ago. <laughs> huh? But I don't want to go back. 
Having said that, I'm not interested in another one of these educational experiences. Yeah, oh, yeah, experiences, yeah. I've had enough education, thank you very much. That's At least kinda like, I think so. You know. The Lord may think otherwise. You know, you need a refresher course, honey. Yeah. Every You're time, bye-bye. I feel the same way about the when Skype enhances my experience, that, you know, huh? really I could do without <laughs> my experience being enhanced anymore, thanks. But, you know, it, it, it keeps happening. So, you know, one, th- one point about that also is that, it says don't worry about what you're going to say. Like, don't get troubled, don't get nervous, you know, don't don't stress over it. It doesn't say don't prepare. You know, it doesn't say just sit there and watch cartoons until your court date. Oh, I agree. You know, uh, I agree. You 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 got to do something. You know, you got to you got to give God something to work with. Well, you know, there's another point about that. I think you might be right the way you're describing it right now and I hadn't thought of it before. He's essentially saying don't stress out over what you're going to say. Good Lord will give you the words. I've read that in the past to mean that he'll give you the words when you get to court. But it may be that if you're studying right now and you're working on things, say, well, I've got to go to court. I've got two weeks or a month or whatever it is to get ready. Let me see. Let's read this and this and this. It may mean what he means is he's saying, I'll give you the words while you're studying. Don't worry about it. Right? I'll give yeah. you the words you need before you ever get to court. Maybe that's what he means in that verse, and I don't know that's true. Well, the, my, my, my feeling is I, I don't think God ever means, don't worry about it, just go watch cartoons, and uh, once we get there, I'll, I'll take care of it for you. I, I, I don't think he ever means that with anything. I, yeah. I think he engages us so we can be involved with him, not sit back and go, Hey, thanks, God. You know, I'll be over here watching cartoons while you take care of this, all right? You know, I I don't think that's how it works. I think it's supposed to be kind of like when Dad had a project when we were kids. Come out here, Junior. You know, we're going to do this, whatever it is. Build a bicycle or whatever. You know, Dad has a project that you're a part of now, uh, whether you want it to be or not, because Dad wanted you Dad wanted to do this project with you, you know, spend some time with the kid, that that whole thing. I think I think God is, is, you know, the same. I think he wants to be involved with us and that, you know, that, hey, he'll help us. He'll give us the words. He'll get us out of a lot of jams. But, you know, I don't think we can just be bystanders to be, you know, uh, uh, spectators. I think we I agree to participate. You know, there's verse in Revelation and I don't remember exactly where. Uh, I'm looking at 18, chapter 18, 19, and I don't see. Ah, here it is. 21, chapter 21, verse, uh, let me put my other glasses on. I need one pair of glasses with a computer monitor and another pair of glasses. If I'm going to read something in a book. You would think that wouldn't be so, but it is, or at least I'd think it would be so. Um, Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 and 8. He says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowards, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
He's given us a laundry list at verse 8 of people destined for damnation. And he says, but the cowards, first one on the list, but the cowards, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, they're going to the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Top of the list is cowards. In some books it says the fearful. In some versions of the Bible it doesn't say cowards, it says the fearful. What's the point? Well, I think that, I think that is... Okay, to be fearful, to be a coward, I think is a lack of faith. That's exactly right. And to the extent you really have faith, you don't feel fear. Right? Now, all of us are subject, or I assume all of us are subject to fear to some degree. But when you really have faith, you lose your capacity. To the extent you have faith, you have less fear. To the extent you have more fear, it's evidence that your faith is weak. And the verse we were talking about previously, where God says, don't worry about what you're going to say when you get to court. Or the Messiah, I believe, I believe it's in the New Testament. <clears throat> He's saying, don't fear what you're going to say when you get to court, which is a little bit consistent with what we've been talking about. Get out there and do your homework, do your study. Good Lord will guide you to what you need to know so you can say what you need to say as witness for him. But don't succumb to fear. All right? Your fear is inversely proportional to your faith. It is a lack of faith. It's number one on that laundry list, uh, Revelation 21.8. Number one thing that will get you sent to damnation is being fearful. Huh? Because it's evidence you don't have good faith. Well, maybe that's what they're talking about. Don't worry. When you go to court, I'll tell you what to say. I think it is. I, I myself, anyway. But again, you know, that's what I believe. I, I you know, it's not something I can prove. <laughs> there's, there's one other. There's one other possibility. Good Lord will give you what you need to say after it's all over. So I should have said that. I know what I should have said. Yeah, I should have said to. Uh, <clears throat> that's happened to me. I've done that. <laughs> Mostly, it's, I shouldn't have it. said that. Man, I really shouldn't have said that. That was something I shouldn't have said. Yeah. yeah no. uh, well, <laughs> you know, it may be, and I don't doubt that it's true, that each one of these little adventures in the courts are an educational experience. And they are not simply whether you win or lose at this level. All right? Big deal, you went in on a traffic court problem. It's uh, not like you're facing 20 years in the slammer. Right. It may be that you didn't win your little battle in traffic court, but it may be that the process educated you and makes you more difficult to convict in another court and perhaps for an allegedly greater offense. You know, you learn all of these things. And sometimes it's not just a question where you learn, good Lord says, here's a book, read this, and then you'll understand. Sometimes you're not going to understand until you go through the court. And you get handed your head, figuratively speaking, and then it becomes real in a way that, you know, the books are interesting. Oh, I absolutely believe that. I mean, I, I absolutely, this is why... I, I, you know, probably once a month encourage people on the radio that, look, you know, if you get the chance, just go down to your courthouse, mm -hmm. whether you know anybody going through anything or not. 
Yeah. So we'll look through the docket and see, you know, which courtroom seems more interesting to you. Yeah. And and then go sit in there for a couple yeah. of hours and watch what goes on. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I mean, really, because you read these books, you know, the law books, and oh, well, blah, 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 blah. I had a friend that used to, he, he had very little... Well, he he later on got experience, and <laughs> it wasn't good, but uh, he read lots of law books. He was a real smart guy and really had it down, and he had this, this thing that used to didn't bug me at first till I started going to court and getting pulled over and not driving around with a license and all this other good stuff that he'd say, well, such and such at so-and-so in Article 5 and uh, Section 3 and whatever, ever, they can't do that. <laughs> I'm like... Uh oh yeah they can do that and they do that all the time yeah and that's the difference you'll find between the books and the court <clears throat> well again I'm going to argue that they can do all kinds of things within they can do virtually anything they want within a territory well the same circumstances within the borders of a state of the union they can't do it and people sit back and say well I've read the books well where what venue did the books apply to I mean, the first question, whenever they say it's the law, you know, the government, wow, it's the law. You've got to obey the law. Okay, it's the law. Where? Where is it the law? It should be the first question out of your mouth. Where is it the law? Is it the law within a state of the United States or is it the law within a state of the Union? What venue does the law apply to? That's the first question I want to be, I, I hope to remember to ask if I'm going to be dealing with these kinds of situations. But when they say it's the law, yeah, it's the law, but where? You know, it's like saying someone in Uganda says, well, it's the law. Okay, fine, it's the law where? Well, it's the law in Uganda. Well, what's that got to do with me? I'm over here within the borders of these state of Texas. And if you can put them in a position where, in theory, assuming this, this idea we're advancing is valid, they have to admit, well, it's the law of the territories, or it's the law of the states of the United States, or it's the law of Washington, D.C., or the Northern District of Texas. I'm not in the Northern District yeah, they're of gonna Texas. Wanna, they're I'm gonna... within the borders of the state of Texas. Yeah, they're going to want to say that. Me? They're going to they're want to write that down, uh, you know, in the record that, yeah, this is the law of the territories. No, I understand that, no, but that's... You're going home. It, you see, you, you, you're dismissed. You're going home. Get out. We don't, yeah, I you know, we're not going any further Especially with if you can make these questions early enough where they can see it coming, and they say, we don't want this in our courtroom. We don't want it on the record. Get him out of here. Yeah, we might even charge you with trespassing if we find you anywhere near the courtroom. Yeah, I know. You know, uh, and... Persona non grata. That's right. And yeah. the thing is... This whole jurisdiction and venue thing has been floating around for a long time because I remember it from 20 years ago. Going to court and and guys would actually go in and blah, 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 and then it'd be like, well, what's your jurisdiction? And we were, I mean, I can look back now. We thought we were all pretty smart. Mm Mm-hmm. But I can look back now and see that, yeah, we were on to something, yep. but we had no idea what we were doing. <clears throat> yep. But, hey, we were doing it anyway. We were trying it out. We're going to court. People were going to jail and getting judges real mad and all this stuff. And venue, well, what's the venue? The venue is Medford, Oregon District Court. Yeah. I remember that. And, and I remember it because it baffled me. Yep. I was like, Wow. 
boy, that shot us down, huh? Because that is the venue. Oh yeah, yeah well, that's so where were venue. you? Yeah, that's one venue. Were you in the venue of Medford, Oregon, or were you in the venue of the city of Oregon, within or city of Medford, within Baker County or whatever county it has to happens to be within the borders of the state of Oregon, a member state of the Perpetual Union, style right. of the United States of America? I think the term Medford, Oregon, particularly. When you fix a, 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 a zip code to it, I think it signals you're in a territory. And he's telling you, correct, we're in a territorial jurisdiction. Well, and there was a lot more to ask, you know, but we didn't know that. Yeah, I understand he, he, that. He said that, and he said it with authority, and we were, like, baffled. Yeah. We didn't know, uh-oh, you know, yeah, uh-oh, <clears throat> you're done. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to get whatever they, you know, decide you're going to get, and it's yep. not going to be you're dismissed. You know, it's going to be a fine or something else. But, uh, you know, we did that, and I watched a lot of other guys do it, and it, it didn't work. But it was not complete. It was just... That was the it, problem. It's like saying, and I tried this too, incomplete, didn't know any better, but I hey, I gave it a shot. I object. Yeah, okay. Why? Well, because well, I do. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Nice well, try. Yeah, overruled. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know that's that's you know, and then he tells you after a while, look, stop objecting, or I'm going to find you in contempt. And he's right. I mean, because look, okay, you object. Why? Because I do. What are you, an idiot? Uh, yeah. Overruled. Blah 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 blah. I object. Okay, why? Because I do. All right, look. You know what? I at that point. Wouldn't I be in contempt? I think he'd be he'd be right. I didn't think he was at the time, but you know, I think he's right. If I won't learn and I don't know what I'm doing, that is contempt. That's like, hey, you're just disrupting things around here, and you don't know what you're doing, and uh, we've got a good scam going on here. We're not here to help you. Yeah, that's right. We're here to take your money, right? Without so, pissing you, know. you off. Try to get the maximum amount of money with the least amount of rage right. on the part of the people who have to hand it over. I really thought it was a horrible misjustice, you know, injustice, and this is wrong, and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. And then I started reading and realizing, oh, I am an idiot, you know. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. You know, gee. The beginning, the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Recognizing yeah. you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. <clears throat> you know, that's, oh, my gosh. That's the beginning of wisdom. And when do you pick that up? In your 20s? No. How many people generally. sit back and realize in their 20s that they're idiots? Especially young men. <laughs> they don't realize they're idiots. Well, they can't I didn't. believe they're idiots. That's well, what testosterone is all about, well, to defend you against any allegation that you're an idiot. Well, I don't I'm wanna... not an idiot. I have testosterone. <laughs> How can I be an idiot? I don't want to make broad and, and sweeping statements, but I didn't get it in my 20s, that's for sure. No, I know. And I don't think most people can. I don't there think There may so be exceptions. Either. I couldn't. Yeah. I guarantee I was too dumb. And it has a lot to do with testosterone, in my opinion. It gives you a level of confidence and self-confidence in things that I may be so stupid it's hard to believe. You've got to get old enough <laughs> where your testosterone level begins to fall to where you're capable of rational thought. <laughs> right? And, and it's kind of a joke, but there's a certain amount of truth to it. You know, I mean, it has to do with which head are you thinking with? 
Oh, that again. When the testosterone goes down enough, all of a sudden you can begin to oh, I'm beginning to perceive things. <laughs> and, you know, but... See, I where, thought that only... Are you? I thought that, that whole thing only applied to one thing, but apparently <clears throat> it's, a it's, wi- a, it's a widespread problem. It's, it's, it's the, the computer is not capable of multitasking. You understand? Yeah. <laughs> if the one head is in charge... The other one is dormant. Okay. Right? It's not where you can do both at the same time, <clears throat> at least not comfortably. But eventually you get to a point where your discernment increases. And, you know, you wish they said, if I knew then what I know now. Oh, man. <laughs> you couldn't know then what you know now. Well, in a lot of things, you know, you wouldn't, even <clears throat> if somebody tried to tell you, you wouldn't believe them then. You know, you'd go, what are you, crazy? Yeah. What's the relevance to that? What's that got to do with the girl at the end of the bar? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Talk to me about legal title and equitable title. What do I care about that? What's that got to do with it? You see that girl? I yeah. mean, that kid. That girl is hot, baby. Yeah. What's that you know? got to do with anything? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, boy. Well, gee, it's great to be old, huh? Well, it's not a complete loss. That's right. There, you there go. is. You know, there are things that you miss and there's things you wish you were able to do and whatever. Um, you know, and I mean, you can see inevitably where it's heading. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, I mean, well, yeah. You know, sooner or later, they're going to nail the lid shut on the box and you become to, you begin to appreciate that more as you get older. And you begin to understand that sooner or later is going to be a lot sooner than later. Well, I'm in awe. It yeah. hasn't already happened, so you know it's it's, it's to uh, you or to me. Well, probably both. Now that mm. I think about it, but m- yeah, me, which one is this? Thinking... Which <laughs> who, which one of us has exceeded their predicted shelf life? Yeah, well, I'm know? thinking me, but uh, you know, now that you make me think about it, it could be you too. Yeah, uh, I get it. But uh, no, really, anything past like 25 has been gravy for me. Well. I don't know. You know, it's it's been it's been interesting, and I the one thing that I delight in, I really do enjoy learning. Oh, right? I thought you were going to say my to torment, mm, as yeah. you blame me for things. But no, I, uh, I blame you for stuff. That's just gravy. What difference? What? What? Yeah, that's there's a certain <laughs> amount of satisfaction having someone to blame, but <clears throat> I don't know. You get to a point where it's not really that important to blame other people anymore. You know, there was a time when it was important. Now <laughs> I just, oh my God! <clears throat> you see, the idea behind blaming people presumes <laughs> that there are people around here who could actually do a good job, ah, and wouldn't be blamed. And you reach a certain level of maturity when you can realize, no, there aren't. There is, uh, you know, the the incompetence is endemic and you just have to go along with the flow yes that's that's what i always say no. makes for a more comfortable life i don't expect people to be competent i'm not you know not really but I, but you know I but do, when i want to feel good when i want to feel good about myself i go downtown that's... and go shopping and and meet all the people that work at those stores that have jobs and everything yeah, yeah. and i then i <laughs> I make the mistake of saying, can you help me? And then I realize shortly after that was a big mistake. Yep. Because, no, they can't. They And I don't mean they don't want to. They can't. Is that because they don't know how or because you are beyond help? 
<laughs> what is the explanation? Well, I don't know. There's probably some of that. <clears throat> little of both. Both, yeah, both. Little but both, mostly, yeah, yeah. you know, when you work in a store and I go, well, can you tell me where something is? Oh, yeah. And your answer is to walk me around the store looking for it. Well, I can do that myself. You know, I mean, I, I can walk around lost looking for things and, and you know, but now I have company, a perfect stranger. Yeah, except for one thing, he doesn't walk as fast as I do. Right. He's actually slowing me down. I could cover more territory <laughs> right. on my own rather than just, nah, yeah. da, 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 you know. I see. So you've, you've actually asked for help at, like, Lowe's or Walmart or well, I try not there. to, but it happens from time to time. You're forced to do it every once in a while. And it's kind of a learning experience. And a lot of times you get help out of people. I get that. But, man, I don't much. I'm just you, like, I oh, say. my God. Yeah, I don't much, really. I mean, I really don't. Most of the time, I, I mean, I'm just walking along going, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't ask for help. You know what? I'm stupid. I do this every time. And then yeah, I, I, I know. That, that's the thing. It's You keep repeating these mistakes, and it's kind of like, are you stupid or are you just naive? You keep hoping that you're actually going to get some hope out of the, or help out of the deal. And uh, let's try. Let's let's see if I can get some help from this person over here. No, uh, uh-uh. no, no, <laughs> no. no. It's, no. And you're there. <laughs> he should be having his own radio talk show. Yeah, yeah. He can talk, and I don't want to listen to this crap, please. <laughs> you know. Then you get the guy that actually does be help. Light. And then sometimes, if you're going to a computer store, <laughs> oh, boy. that's where I really dread asking for help. <laughs> it's where I need it the most. Uh-huh. And run into someone who's really, he's actually competent. Wow. And he can explain things that I completely cannot understand. Okay. It's like talking to a PhD in physics or something. I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to find out how to turn on the refrigerator, and we're getting a lesson in how, you know, the computer. The compressor works, and and the, we we are chilling things and the rest of that sort of thing. And I'm saying, no, just where's the on-off switch? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> that's because that's all I can understand. So well, it'd be nice to find. Of course, I, I regret asking people because they make me appreciate how dumb I am usually. So, <laughs> well, I don't. You know, I I. I, I stopped going to computer stores around here because I go in and there's lots of shelves and there's hardly anything on them and everything I ask for they don't have and uh, you know I'm like back on my computer ordering everything online again. Yeah. You know things are. Uh, I tell you this economy is. It's got a nice facade on it, but boy, it's pretty thin. Behind the scenes, this economy is pretty pretty thin, pretty no. fragile, pretty. Uh, you know. It, I, it won't take much. Read an article today from Michael Snyder, the Economic Collapse blog. Snyder is a very intelligent guy, writes is extremely prolific and the rest of that. He wrote an article that there's a hundred, almost 103 million people in this country who are of prime working age who don't have jobs. Mm-hmm. That's a third of the country that doesn't, that's unemployed. Right? That is not a small figure. And it may explain what's going on with Bernie Sanders, for example. Bernie Sanders has been having spectacular rallies, 
20,000 people or more are showing up to hear him speak. He's collected almost as much money as Hillary Clinton. I think he's got 26 million and she's got 28 or she's got 26 and he's got 24. So he's but broke almost, too. Pardon me? So he's broke too. No, he's not. Uh, he doesn't even claim to be broke. Plus, all of his donations are from private individuals. Oh, wow. He's not getting any PAC money. He's not getting any big contributions from heavy hitters. It's all from a multitude, a mass of people who are prepared to support him with their money and prepared to support him politically. And he's a pure socialist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And what I think is driving his campaign is a third of the people in this country are unemployed. A third. That's what we're basically talking about. Yeah. If there's 102, uh, 103 uh, million that don't have jobs, there's only 320 million in the country. We're talking basically a third of the population. And it's not just a third of the adults, a third of the entire population and it doesn't include children, for example, and the elderly are retired. It suggests that when we compare to just people who are old enough to have jobs, and normally we could be talking that half of the people in the country who are old enough to have jobs and normally you'd expect to have jobs are unemployed. Now, what are those people going to vote for? They're going to vote for whoever tells them they're going to put a chicken in a pot for them. These people are hungry, and they want something. They need something. They don't know how to get jobs. They don't know how to support themselves, and they are looking for someone who will give them some handouts. And it's not simply because they're greedy and irresponsible and the rest of that. I mean, they're desperate to some degree. And I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, my God, Bernie Sanders is going to launch a political revolution in this country. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that Trump can beat Sanders. Well, what did Trump... Uh, Trump threw out a number. He said on the real unemployment rate's 40%. And well, by that, he's not so far off, is he? But having... Yeah, having said that, I don't know that Trump has made any promises to put a chicken in every pot. I don't know that Trump has said, yeah, we got 40% unemployment, but I, or whatever percentage he claimed. But I don't know that he's said anything about... Well, what are we going to do about it? He's just observing a fact where Bernie Sanders is saying, well, we're going to tax the rich and we're going to give it to the poor people. There's a lot of poor people who want that. Under other circumstances, they'd have jobs. But the government, it's infinite wisdom, so not a bunch of our jobs to foreign countries. They allow illegal aliens to come in and take a percentage of the jobs that remain. You know, it's not just the people's fault. Well, They're no, 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 weak, not at all. Uninformed, unintelligent, perhaps, but at least ignorant, and they're going to do the best they can, which means well, they're they going to do whatever they can. Yeah. You know, and so that could be dangerous. I look at Sanders, and I'm saying, this guy could foment a real left-wing revolution in this country, and it would feed off all the people that are unemployed. Well... I, I can't say that I think that's a good thing. Uh, I can't say it's... No, I think it's a dangerous thing, but just the same. I'm looking at it, and to me, the numbers... If Michael Snyder is correct that 103 million people are unemployed, what do they care about Donald Trump or anybody else? Or Hillary? Right. What, do you, what do they have for these unemployed people? Well, more Bernie than Bernie Sanders is saying, I'll get you some something to eat. I'm a socialist. I'll get you something to eat. 
I guarantee that's a persuasive sales pitch, and a lot of these people, and that's what's happening. He is inspired. You know, Trump, he puts on a good sideshow. But Bernie Sanders is pulling 20,000 people to a rally and more in some instances. I don't know that Trump can match that right now. Trump puts on a good act, but there's people that are really supporting Bernie Sanders. They really want this. So I'm going to watch. This is going to be a very interesting political campaign. We're going to see, you know, what are we going to do with all these unemployed? And if we don't, what will happen to our entire political system if somebody like Bernie Sanders gets elected? Hmm. So moving to the left, if unemployment is as great as Michael Snyder suggests, moving to the left is not a far-out concept. And we're already a socialist country, for God's sake. Right, and and it might go, you know, I mean, you look at what the U.N.'s doing and the globalists are doing, it fits right into that. That would be, you would think that would be the the next direction they'd want to go. I understand that. Wow. You know, I mean, when Bernie Sanders first came in, I thought that was just laughable. Yeah. Some old guy gonna tell you to try to. Get he's a drugs. socialist for crying out loud. Is yeah, what I right. Thought, okay, you know? I mean, he says he is. It's fine if there's a hundred million unemployed in this country. Yeah. Where is Trump gonna find a hundred million people that are gonna vote for him? Well, or any of the rest of these candidates. And you saw what Biden did, right? He, no. Uh, well, he's uh, he's considering uh, because he hasn't said that he would actually run yet, right? Mm-hmm. He's being so coy, but. Uh, Elizabeth, in the dance of the seven veils. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren. Uh-huh. Now, you know, I don't think it can get more socialist than her, except maybe with Bernie Sanders. Elizabeth Warren is pretty far to the left. You know, yeah. Well, okay, so you've got... So what is Sanders, and you've got the other communists over there. I mean, and who, who, the Republicans, yeah, they're interesting to watch, but they've got this, I don't know, they've got this thing about shooting themselves in the head really down well when it comes to elections, and yeah, it's all interesting and looks good, and then let's pick McCain. Yeah, that was just... It's like, What? Are you kidding me? You have all these candidates, right? And then you come up with like living at John. What was it, Bill Bob Jones or whatever, with the Kool Aid? Yeah, Jim Jones. uh, (laughs) Jim Jones. South America. Jim Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the Republicans have learned from that how to serve up Kool Aid with cyanide in it. Oh, self destruct. You know, and that they they've been really successful at that, and. You know, it's like, wow. Uh, then you look at the other side and you go, well, okay, look, somebody, uh, and people tell me, well, it doesn't make any difference, none of this, and that. it's all just, well, that's all true, I believe, but nevertheless, one of these people are going to end up president. You know, that's the real scary part. Yeah, it is the scary part because part of the problem is who in all the world has enough brains to be president? None of, the, none of the ones. None the job of the ones. Really, doesn't the job exceed anyone's capacity? I think so. You know, what can you do as president in the end? You make interesting speeches. I don't know. There's, well, there's, there's things in motion right now that are too big for anyone to control. Well, you know what? The, the, 
why, and why that is is because the office of the president has taken on more than what it's supposed to be. You know, I agree. there's too much, and and no one man can do it because they're doing more than they're supposed to do. Yep. And why? Because they've abandoned the idea of limited government. Sure. And decided they are going to be all things to all people, right. whether you like it or not. Right, whether it kills us all or not. <laughs> they don't <laughs> care, you know. Yeah. There's a country, what, uh, you know. And, uh, and like you say, they, they can't do it. None yeah. of them, nobody, nobody we pick is, is going to be good enough to, oh, hell, hey, here he comes. He's going to fix it all. Well, just not likely to happen because we're in too deep, and I doubt that we're going to get out without no. some sort of a serious debacle. There's going to be a collapse. There's going to be some sort of a problem that no one's going to like, and in the midst of enormous pain, we may actually have to get our heads screwed on straight, a little like Russia did after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. It went yeah. through a decade of hell on earth before they got, before they gave up their socialist ways, at least to some extent. So, you know, let's push this in a different direction and try to be rational rather than ideological. I think we're out of time for We you. are. We are. Thanks for okay. having me on. All right. Always appreciate it. Enjoy talking to you as always. Look forward to doing it again next Tuesday. I want to thank all you folks for listening. Frank and I will be back next Tuesday, Barn the Unforeseen. We hope you'll tune in at that time, and perhaps we may have something intelligent to say. Good night. God bless you all. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
Report heard on the American Voice Radio Network. It is Tuesday, October 6, 2015. It's about eight minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. You want to participate in the show, you can. That's the difference between live and Memorex. 800 932 1980. You can call in can also go to the chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. Click it. You're in there. And if you want to uh, get directly to me, Yahoo Instant Messenger is a good way. The screen name is AVRN Talk. I did just notice, like, if you've been trying to get in touch with that today, I've been offline. Uh, You know, I would expect some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of uh, message on there saying, uh, you know, you're uh, offline. But nope. I didn't. I didn't know I was offline. But I do now. Now I'm back on there. Anyhow. Okay, something interesting here. And I will pass this on because this is something that you guys can do, that we do. Uh, you know, you go to yard sales or thrift stores or estate sales or whatever. And you find cast iron pots and pans, Dutch ovens and such. Well, you can pick them up real cheap at a lot of places, and sometimes, you know, they're rusty and this and that and the other thing. And somebody in the chat room just posted a way to recondition them, all right? Basically bring them back to life and use them. Or, hey, bring them back to life and sell them, whichever one you do. Now he says, uh, 
Soak them for three days in lye and water. Lye is, you know, lye, L-Y-E, the stuff you make soap from. And uh, then, after three days soaking in lye water, scrub and rinse good with a piece of steel wool. Okay? And then, oil quickly and put in an oven at 250 for 45 minutes. Then raise it to 375 for an hour. He says after that, they will be basically non-stick. Okay? You know, so there, there's a good thing, folks. You know, I mean, you can cook on a piece of steel, all right? I mean, but if you if you do these pans right, like you said, they, they become like non-stick. And folks, please, don't buy any of these, uh, you know, Teflon or whatever the new thing is that uh, non-stick, you know... Forget the off-gassing and stuff and all that other thing. Man, that stuff chips off in your food. I'm telling you, I, I, it, I've seen it. I don't care how good they say it is, man. You use that stuff for any amount of time, and it starts chipping off into your food. And I don't think that's got, that can't be good to eat, okay? That cannot be good to eat. Anyhow, so uh, there you go. Anyway... See, it all goes along with the whole preparedness thing. All right? Anyway. Okay, let me let me add something here. Oh, let's see. Yes. There. I like to try to participate in the chat room when I can. Anyway, Let's see what we can get to over here. Uh, oh, 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 yeah. Now, did you hear? Oh, yes, you did hear because I brought uh, uh, I did bring this story up, and now there is more on it, and uh, somebody else goes a little further. Now, you heard about the bombing of the hospital in Afghanistan, correct? All right, the United States bombed a hospital. A Doctors Without Borders hospital in Afghanistan. And, of course, you know, the world, the rest of the world is like, they think this is an obscene violation of human rights and 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 uh, a violation of land warfare rules. I mean, this is you know, this is just a war crime. You can't bomb hospitals. Look, folks, you know, I don't care how wrapped up in the red, white and blue flag you might be. You can't run around bombing hospitals. I don't care if you say Hitler lives in the basement of a hospital. You still can't bomb a hospital. Are you crazy? Are you really going to sit there and come up with excuses as to why it's okay for you to bomb hospitals? Well, fine, I'm not buying it. And if any of you out there are buying it, you're a moron. There's, it's never okay to bomb a hospital. 
Okay, I guess unless it bombed you first. But then it wouldn't be much of a hospital, would it? Thing is, why would they do that? Now, somebody in the chat room says there was somebody, someone in that hospital that saw or heard something they weren't supposed to. Okay? That's certainly one one reason they could do that. And, folks, if you don't think they'll blow up a whole hospital, a whole town, shoot down a whole airplane, sink a whole ship, kill a whole city to get one guy they've decided they need got, they will. Because your lives, my life, is meaningless to these animals at the top of this satanic system. Or even their minions. However, there's a different take on this. Here's the headline. Did Obama bomb Doctors Without Borders for opposing TPP? Boom, 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 boom. See, that's the other thing in the news that we're not hearing about. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, yes, they passed that. Oh, isn't that great? We have a secret treaty now with uh, 16 nations or something. Anyway, had the president of Nobel Prize winning Doctors Without Borders not warned us of the imminent threat to global health posed by the TPP, Would these 22 doctors and patients have lost their lives early Saturday? I don't know exactly how long, but it was maybe half an hour afterwards that they stopped bombing. I went out with the project coordinator to see what had happened. What we saw was the hospital destroyed and burning, described Nurse Lagos Zoltan Zex of U.S. bombardment of a hospital in Kuduz, Afghanistan. Harsh criticism and skepticism surround what is being labeled an errant U.S. bombardment of a hospital in Kudas that left 22 people dead, many of them volunteers with Medices San Flores. It's Doctors Without Borders, the humanitarian aid agency, but doubt lingers about the vague official story for a reason. Doctors Without Borders calls airstrike a war crime. Gee, there's a stretch. What? Well, hey, when did bombing hospitals become wrong? Huh? Uh, anyway. Quote, why did they have to blow up the whole hospital? We know that the Americans are very clever. If they can target a single person in a car from their planes, why did they have to blow up the whole building? Yeah, errant bombs. Oops, sorry, mistake. Just like kind of dropping all the weapons to ISIS. Oh, gee golly, was that ISIS? Oh, oh, wait, was that ISIS again? Oh, wait, again, was that ISIS? Gee, this keeps happening. It's all just a mistake. Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. The ostensible, ostensible explanation, according to rumors centered on reports, Taliban forces had entered the location and were using the cover of the hospital to fire on coalition forces. Mm-hmm. Christopher Stokes, MSF, 
General Director, irately stated, Not a single member of our staff reported fighting inside the MSF hospital compound prior to the U.S. airstrike Saturday morning. The hospital was full of MSF staff, patients, and their caretakers. If it it is 12 MSF staff members and 10 patients, including three children, who were killed in the attack. Hmm. Is something being overlooked? U.S. forces conducted an airstrike in Kadutz City at 2.15 a.m. local time on the 3rd of October against individuals threatening the force. The strike may have resulted in collateral damage to a nearby medical facility. This incident is under investigation. This attack is abhorrent and a grave violation of international humanitarian law, declared MSF president. Uh, we demand local trans- total transparency from coalition forces. We cannot accept that this horrific loss of life will simply be dismissed as collateral damage. Well, yes, that's exactly what they're going to do. Now, let's get down here. Because we know they blew them up. We know it's a war crime. We don't know why. So, Doctors Without Borders vocally opposes the TPP. If circumstances of any incident appear not to add up, it's pertinent to thoroughly examine the current narrative for signs the state is attempting to mold public opinion. Because it is there you will find the truth that you're not being told. In the case of MSF, that's the name of the hospital, a massive treaty-come-trade uh, treaty deal work involving U.S. interests in other parts of the world from the tragedy in Kadutz can offer perhaps insight which might otherwise seem unrelated. As it turns out, MSF have been particularly vocal critics of the impending Trans-Pacific Partnership, and their criticism has not gone unnoticed. National Journal in May. It's not unusual business for us, and the reason is because we're very worried, explained Judith Russ Sanjun, who oversees Doctors Without Borders' drug access campaign in a phone interview. We are doing anything we can to make sure the public is aware. Though the Nobel Prize winning group has actively but reservedly opposed the massive TPP deal for years, recent letters to President Obama and a campaign of subway ads on the D.C. Metro show a more urgent public push. The president of the group admitted such robust effort is not unusual, is not usual practice for us. What is so pressing for the public to know that is has led the group to abandon its typically subdued tone. Simply, drug costs. Specifically, the intellectual property and patent laws that will favor drug companies should the TPP take effect. Negotiations reached ahead over the weekend for the 12-country Trans-Pacific Partnership as Australia and the U.S. attempted to hammer out differences over intellectual property rules for next-generation biological medicines. Though the U.S. seeks to keep a 12-year period in place for pharmaceutical companies to retain exclusive rights over clinical data, Australian Trade Minister Andrew Robb reportedly didn't budge past five-year limit. At issue is data exclusively. The longer the information is held, the longer it takes for for generics to reach the market. 
Australia's current arrangements are completely adequate and any proposed changes are non-negotiable. This is a real issue for us, he said. After five days of marathon talks in Atlanta, negotiations were pushed back again. But a vote could come as soon as Monday night. And I believe it did. I'm going to have to check on that. But I think they passed it. Pretty sure anyway. But we'll check it out and see. It doesn't matter because you know they're going to pass it. I mean, really, you know they're going to pass it. Now, hey, whatever happens in the future, maybe they can undo it. Maybe they can't. But the thing is, they are so determined to pass this that you can bet it's going to pass. If it didn't pass Monday, it will pass sometime. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Gosh. Um, well, I don't see anything at the top here. And, of course, why would it be at the top, though? I mean, really, why would it be at the top? It wouldn't be at the top. It would be buried somewhere in the bottom. Oh, by the way, you're all screwed. They passed TPP. Let's see. Let's look for that. Um, no, I'm not seeing anything, so... Maybe it's not really news. Maybe it's not important, the TPP. Hmm. <laughs> nah, here's somebody else, though. I, I got to click on this. I don't know who this guy is. Diller. Barry Diller. <laughs> Barry Diller. The founder and chairman of IAC Interactive. Yeah. Yeah, he says he'll leave the country if if uh uh Donald Trump is elected. Oh, he's a nasty mean person. Well, gee. A nasty mean person. Let's see. What exactly are we electing? What what are we voting for here? Okay, what are, what are we voting here? Oh, yeah, that's right. President of the United States of America. Hmm, Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States of America. Hmm, let's see. Uh, do I want a mean, nasty man there? Well, uh, you know what? As long as he's my mean, nasty man... As long as he's working for my benefit, for this country's benefit, oh, hell yeah, that's exactly who I want there. That's who I want as commander-in-chief, a mean, nasty man. That's right. Do I want him as my neighbor? No. Am I going to invite... Would I want to have Donald Trump over for dinner? I doubt it. Unless, of course, you know, like he's willing to pay me like $100,000 a plate, then I'll make him dinner. But other than that, no. But I'm not electing him neighbor, okay? I'm electing him president, commander-in-chief. You know what? And if he's willing to work for the American people, oh, yeah, I'm going to need a mean, nasty man. So this guy, Diller, is an idiot. A mean, nasty man, that's supposed to make me not want to vote for him? And if he's a mean, nasty man, what does that make Hillary Clinton, for crying out loud? 
Because, I mean, Donald Trump looks like little Bo Peep compared to Hillary Clinton, as far as I'm concerned. So what does that make her? And Holly Weird loves her. These people are just such a bunch of hypocrites. They don't really care. They'll say anything. They are. It's a city of liars. That's what Holly Weird really is. Illusionists. Not that, hey, look, I'm not supporting Donald Trump. I'm just saying. Jeez. I mean, look. Hey, before this election, if you'd asked me, hey, what do you think of Donald Trump? I'd have told you I think he's a slimy used car salesman. Okay? Sure, he's a billionaire. He's made a lot of money in real estate. Ah, he had a leg up. His daddy was rich. Okay? He started with money. And yeah, he, he, he's, he's built upon it. He didn't lose it. Good for Donald, you know? We won't be able to say that about his kids. But hey, now... And why is that? Why is it now that I can take a guy who, say last year, I would have said, he's a slimy used car salesman. Well, I still say he's a a slimy used car salesman. But the difference now is he's he's still the slimy used car salesman he was last year. However, now he's in the presidential race. Let's look at the other candidates, shall we? All right, if we're going to grade on a curve here, you tell me, who's looking better to you? And that's all it really is, who's looking better, who's sounding better, because they're all full of crap, okay? But really, and whether you like it or not, this is really happening. Okay, these people are really running for president, and one of them's really going to get in there. So whether we think it's a theater, it's all fake, it doesn't matter, who cares anyway, well, one of them's getting in there. That's a fact. And I hate to say this, but out of the group, Donald Trump is my favorite. Well, let's compare my choices, though, okay? Okay, we got Jeb Bush, right? We got Hillary Clinton. We got Bernie Sanders. You know. Yeah, that that's the group, okay? <laughs> you know the rest of the group. Uh, anyway, so there you go. There you have it. So I guess uh, there's that. And uh, we're at break time, so we'll take a break, and I'll be back in just a few. Yes, it is. Two Morse miners and a broomstick. Hubcaps. Got a new record called You Can't Teach an Old Dog New Tricks. This is the song.
that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? 
Don't forget to tune in to the Sulphur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's Tuesday, October 6, 2015. It's about, eight, eh, about 8.40 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. 800-932-1980 is how you call in. You want to get to the chat room, go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And you, too, can participate in the show. That's right. Either way, one way you're going to be on the air, the other way you're going to be in the chat room. Okay? If you want to contact me directly, Yahoo Instant Messenger, AVRN, talk. All right. Now, there's a dispute in the chat room that somebody called in the uh, a winning guest last night on Yahoo Instant Messenger, perhaps... That's when the Yahoo Instant Messenger collapsed or without me knowing about it. It's been all day. Wow. I didn't know, but uh, I didn't see it, so sorry. But anyways, uh, the room did get the first uh, song, which I'll never know how because, well, either good ear or good memory or something, but I don't know. Uh, I didn't know how many people knew the name C6 Steve. <laughs> but that was the first song. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Anyhow, the second song they did not get. Okay? And uh Mean Old Train. It was Papa Lightfoot. So one one. It's a tie. Anyway. Now, somebody's telling me about, you know, somebody's asking me about micro-broadcasting, basically, lower-power FM, and I'll give you my opinion, okay? I'm making that real clear. This is my opinion, okay? The FCC doesn't allow for that. Oh, sure, they've got low-power licenses, that were designed for low-power FM community stations and such. But the FCC, being the whores that they are, decided, oh, no, 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 that's not how we're going to run this. What we're going to do is we're going to have a set of licenses for low-power, and then we're going to auction them off. That's right. We're going to auction them off. And that means all the FCC licensed stations run in with their hundreds of thousands of dollars and drive up the price out of any individual's grasp. And they suck up all these licenses. Why? So they can go out and put up transponders. Which a transponder is nothing more than like, say, your 95.5 FM, right? Well, you got your range, and say you live in a, uh, you know, you're you're broadcasting in a valley, and uh, you know there's people behind a, you know, you can't get to. So what you do is you put up a a, a transponder, which is basically another station, another transmitter, and what you do is you feed your FM to that. FM, which only takes a regular FM radio, right? And then you rebroadcast it on 95.7 or 8 or whatever. 
And now, look what you've done to your your area that you can cover. You've maybe doubled it, maybe tripled it. Get another transponder. Wow, you know, you you got this huge area now, right? And that's what they've done with the low-power licenses. The FCC, the whores that they are, have sold out to corporate media and sold them all to the existing FM stations and, again, locked the little guy out. Because they don't want you out there with a microphone. They don't want you out there unless you've got something they can take away from you. Now, let me explain something to you. The FCC was created specifically to enforce an international treaty with Mexico over radio frequencies. The problem was, you know, AM. AM goes forever. Okay? And what was happening was Mexico had AM stations. The United States had AM stations. Guys were boosting the power to... 100, 200,000, 400,000 watts. They were covering the whole country. Kind of like shortwave, except with a lot more power. This is why people in Kansas could sit there with their, uh, you know, with their radio in the middle of the room and listen to Buck Rogers or whatever they listen to, right? The shadow. Because it broadcast for thousands of miles. Well, they had to come up with something because, you know, you start using the same frequencies, crisscrossing, nobody can hear anything that's bad for business. We've got to figure this out. So they came up with a treaty, and the United States created the FCC to administer the terms of that international treaty, which was to assign frequencies to AM. Okay? Well, of course, then FM was uh, developed, and uh, they figured, well, that's radio. We're, you know, that's in our purview too. And we're going to do this, and blah blah blah. Okay, here's the thing: the FCC was created for international treaty. They then decided, well, that also applies to, you know, interstate. Okay, but guess what? The FCC. And, you know, this is, like I said, this is my opinion. And they can say they're wrong, but they're going to have to tell me how uh, how I'm wrong. The FCC is a federal agency. They have federal jurisdiction. The federal government has no jurisdiction within the boundaries of a state. Now, Al Adask would argue that, yes, but what kind of state? Because if it's a state territory, territory, uh, you know, territorial state of the United States, well, then they can do whatever they want. Well, they'll have to admit that. They'll have to tell everybody that, well, hey, you think you live in the State of the Union? Well, you don't. We you, we did away with that, and now we're living under something different. How do you all like that? But, Bottom line is, FM is much different than AM. Now, I would not suggest anybody, look, if you want an AM station, check out the licensing thing, because chances are your AM signal is going to leave your state, 
boundaries, whether you're a state of the union or a territorial state or whatever you are, because those, those waves go for thousands of miles. However, FM is much different. FM is line of sight, all right? Like in this valley, an FM signal is not leaving this valley. I don't care how much power you put behind it. It's not getting over those mountains, because that's not what it does. Okay, it doesn't bounce off the ionosphere. It doesn't do what AM does. It's a different thing. It's line of sight. So, you know, if you live in a place where, or, or you live in well, the middle of your state, and you know, well, I'm going to use 10 whole watts. Well, guess what? Your FM is not leaving the state. So, tell me what jurisdiction exactly does the FCC have? Now, they can come and threaten you. They can come and say whatever they want. But the bottom line is, if you know what you're doing, if you know what you're talking about, if you know where you're coming from, even if you're not, maybe you're not 100% right. Maybe I'm not 100% right. But I'm right enough to where you're going to have to prove that I'm wrong. Oh, yeah, and I know the old argument. Well, they come with guns, and that's I got guns, too. So what? Okay? You know, folks, really, it's time to start waking up and realizing someday, somewhere, that's what it's going to come to. We can dance around, and we can talk, and we can do legal things, and we can ask questions, and we try to play nice, and we can try to make changes, and we can try to do everything peacefully. But really, I'm afraid that at the end of the day... It's going to come to blows. They're going to come with guns, and you better have guns too, and get ready for a gunfight. And people are going to die, and you might be one of them. I might be one of them. They might be one of them. You know, when something is inevitable, it's not to be worried about. I mean, it's like, okay, well, that's the way it is, you know, uh, hmm. So if you want to get into micro-broadcasting, understand, the government doesn't like micro-broadcasting, okay? But also understand that the FCC is complaint-based. They don't run around the neighborhood looking for illegal transmissions, okay? They wait for a complaint, and usually... And I'm not saying this is exclusively, but usually the complaints they pay attention to are complaints from FCC-licensed people. They're already paying protection money. They call up the FCC and they say, hey, man, there's this uh, other radio station in town. Uh, My competition, people are listening to them. They're not listening to my uh, advertisers, and I want them shut down. They don't have a license. Get over here and do something about this. I pay you good money for this license. What the hell am I doing that for if you're going to let every Tom, Dick, and Jerry get a transmitter? Blah, 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 blah. And that's usually what they respond to. Little Susie Sunshine that calls them up and says, uh, Oh, I heard, a, I heard a broadcast that disturbed me. They were talking about the end of the world and the government killing us all. Uh, I'm just scared and I want that off the air. Uh, they don't generally uh, listen too much to that, unless, of course, they get, like, you know, a bunch of calls like that. But generally, they respond to 
the people that pay them. And then if that happens, well, you're going to have to be ready. And, and you look, let me give you a little pointer. Something people have done that I have heard of is that they have put their FM antenna to transmit in their attic, out of sight. Now, you don't have to put it in an attic. It could be at the top, inside the top of a barn. The point is not viewable to the naked eye. Now, you know, you got your place locked, right? You don't just let anybody in, do you? They got to have a warrant, don't they? Now, if you know you're under investigation by the FCC, it's time to you squash the warrant before it ever happens and bring up the jurisdictional question. What are you doing here? What do you think your jurisdiction is? Well, we're the FCC and we regulate radio. Yes, and where do you do that? Within a state of the union? I don't think so. Do you have any evidence that any broadcast from me has gone across state lines to give you the jurisdiction of interstate commerce at least? Nothing's foolproof, folks, but you know, you can be careful. You can uh, you know, conceal your antenna depending on where you are. But understand this. People say, "Well, you know, it's, uh, schedule whatever uh, is this many feet, or it's that many feet, and it's uh, if you don't advertise, you can do this many feet, and if you don't advertise that, you can do this. Folks, basically, if I can hear your FM transmission off your property, the FCC is going to tell you you're in violation, regardless of what their books say or anything else says. They don't want you doing it. There's nothing you can do to placate them unless you've got millions of dollars to go to one of these license auctions that they hold. You're never going to get a low-power license, okay? So there is nothing you can do except just do it. That's the bottom line. If you're afraid to do it, don't do it then. Or do it and, you know, deal with your fear. Whatever. That's the harsh reality of it. There is no getting along with them. There is no trying to play nice. Uh, Let me tell you what will happen to you if you try to play nice and get a license the nice way with them. They will run you around in circles for about six months before you realize they're never going to let you have a license. Maybe it'll take a year before you realize they're never going to let you have a license. Oh, they'll take your fee. They'll run you around. They'll give you tasks to do. But you'll never get that license. And how do I know? Because I've seen it. And of course, be smart, folks. You know, you know, people go, don't, don't step on their signal. Listen. It goes the other way far more. They're going to be stepping on you. Because chances are, if there's a license station anywhere around you, they're running anywhere from five to 50,000 watts. You're going to be running like 10. Okay? 
So you're not going to be stepping on them. They're going to be stepping on you. So you want to stay out of their frequency ranges, okay? Go out there, do a little research with a radio, you know, uh, go around where you think you're going to be able to reach and see what radio frequencies are coming in in those areas and pick one that isn't. Uh, somebody's saying there was a way to do a 15, part 15 that went all, well over a mile. No, there never was, you know, and they killed that loophole. There was never a loophole, okay? People thought there was, and they were saying, yeah, we're, gonna, we're doing this, and uh, hey, look, here the law says, and they slammed them down every time and said no. And then they, you know, maybe they rewrote the law and said, okay, fine, let's make it clear, but no. It was never a loophole. It was something people did saying that, oh, look, the way it's written, we can do this. And they, they, they said, no, you don't. We don't interpret it that way. This is what I'm saying. You try to get along with these guys. You try to follow their rules and say, well, this is how you wrote it. They'll just tell you, no, that's not how we interpret it. They'll take all your stuff and smash your things, and that'll be that. And maybe fine you, maybe take you to jail. There's no point trying to get along with them anymore. Not on this issue. I can't think of very many issues there are anymore worth trying to get along with the federal government about. They're a bunch of psychopaths, money-grubbing pieces of garbage criminals. And there's really not a whole lot to talk about with them anymore. There is no common ground. There is no dealing with them. There is no, no negotiating with them. They don't want to compromise. They want you to concede. So, yeah, man, you know, hey, look through, look through the history of the United States. Publishers of Material that didn't go along with the government have always been in danger. All right? Oh, we talk a lot about our free press and all this. How many people have been dragged out and killed for publishing things? All through our history. Let's look at the, do you know the White Rose story from Germany? Bunch of college kids started a group called the White Rose. Okay? Thing is, what were they doing? Publishing pamphlets. That's right. They were publishing little pamphlets. And passing them out at college. And they were critical of the Nazi regime. Critical of the Fuhrer. Critical of the policies of Nazi Germany. Before those policies fully became apparent to the rest of the world. All they did, they never protested. They never threatened anybody. They never did any of that. They only printed pamphlets and passed them out. You know what happened to them? They got their heads chopped off in the town square. 
Yeah, guillotined right in the right in the uh, in the college's courtyard. You know, to kind of give an example to everybody else for printing pamphlets. So listen, broadcasting, printing things that have been critical of government has always had its dangers. So don't think that, oh boy, you know, this is, uh, oh man, I don't know. Hey, if you want to get into it, that's what it is. And it's always been that way. So, you know, (laughs) we're nothing special, folks. We're just next, that's all. I mean, you know, people have been opposing the government, speaking out against it, putting out pamphlets and books and all kinds of things since forever. Now it's our turn. So, you know, I I hope people will get into micro-broadcasting. You know, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see lots of micro-broadcasters, lots of people out there printing pamphlets, although I don't know if anybody can read anymore, but, hey, you know, something. Making videos on YouTube, whatever. Get it out there, man. Everybody knows there's something wrong. Anyway... I'll be back again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. I heard it through the grapevine. My new neighbor don't like my big red barn. A 47 Ford bullet holes in the door broke down motor in the front yard. (laughs) I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotty pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt, and your rambling don't rattle me. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. It was just a few months ago that a friend in Texas forwarded a cassette tape to my attention. 
with a brief note saying, Brother Wheeling, I think you should listen to this talk show program. Alan Dale of KRNN, is that correct? That's right. In San Antonio, Texas, interviewed George Hunt last October. In October of 1987. October of 1987. There were two interviews about a week apart. Alan Dale had been sent a, a tape from a friend who heard a talk show program in Denver That's right. where you were being interviewed. Right away made contact with uh, George, invited him to be on the program, and uh, some very interesting things began to occur. In the one-week interval between the two interviews with George Hunt, he received a threatening phone call saying that if you bring George Hunt on the air again, you'll live to regret it. Words That's to that right. effect. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Two weeks after the second interview, the station was bought out, and Alan Dale lost his job and went elsewhere for employment. We have good reason to believe that when George Hunt arrived here in Birmingham, Alabama last evening, that he was being shadowed. We have good reason to believe that. After you hear the subject, the presentation this evening, I think you will appreciate that people in high places may be disturbed by the information, the knowledge that he has, that God has given to him, information that he feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to share with Americans, with Christians, with anyone anywhere who will listen. Am I speaking correctly here? Including denominational church entities. Yes. I'm particularly interested in the things Mr. Hunt is going to share because for several years I have been studying the prophecies of Old and New Testament that point to some final crisis in the world even in the United States of America a crisis that will be tied to economics to money I had lost my middle son Peter, in one of the wilderness areas, as a matter of fact, that's going to go into this World Bank that we're going to be hearing. He was killed on uh, the Franz Joseph Glacier about a year earlier in uh, New Zealand. And I was feeling pretty blue. It was about the anniversary of his death, and I, I was watching uh, public television one night about 10 p.m., and it said, Fourth World Wilderness Congress is coming to Denver and it uh, showed pictures of reindeer and pictures of the Arctic. And I said, aha, John told me a week ago that he wanted to go to the Arctic. I ought to go to that Congress, rub shoulders with the forest rangers, and see what I can do about procuring my son a job. That's kind of on a father's heart. So I learned that it was very expensive to go to this particular Congress and I did not happen to have that kind of money to just throw around. So I made some phone calls to find out if I could help. And 
It turns out that one of the people that was going to be an official host at the Congress was ill with the flu. I called that person and said, may I take your place? And he said, I would appreciate it very much. I am too sick to show up tomorrow, and the guests are going to be flying into Denver, and somebody has to pick up these dignitaries, and why not you? And so I showed up the next morning in his stead, and my fellow hosts were the divine emissaries of divine light and ashram out of Loveland, Colorado. I was uniquely suited to understand the conspiracy, and I will use the word conspiracy. That is, people whispering together in a covert um, connection to do some dirty work against the United States and against Jesus Christ and against his people, as we will hear this evening. I was uniquely suited because I have taught accounting at a college level. Uh, I have taught business management at a college level. I have 25 years of business experience and for the last 19 years I have been engaged as an entrepreneur of my own business called Medical Resources in going into businesses, analyzing their businesses and seeing what is wrong with them and being able to take all of these variables that I see in this business and come out with conclusions that are correct for their business to save their business. In other words, I'm a business doctor. So when I heard the undertones and the nuances and the double entendres that were going on in the speeches at this Congress, I knew that there was a conspiracy where others might have just had the words pass over their head something here that was not true because conservation is an antipathy with growth and development. They are mutually exclusive, as we have learned. Then when I saw the world bankers at the Congress and the UN Undersecretary Generals and the Secretary General, who I had dinner with one night, and the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the Secretaries of the Treasury and so on, and, and said, I said to myself, why are they suddenly interested in conservation? The world bankers are the ones that have destroyed the rainforest down in Brazil. If you look at the history of the World Bank under Robert S. McNamara, he's the one that designed the Vietnam War. He left the Vietnam War in 1967 and went over to World Bankdom, where he became the president. He set up massive loans that were given without the permission of the American people. There was a token rubber stamp for these massive loans to go out of our world banking system into the hands of Brazil and Mexico and the Latin America countries, and we don't know really how those monies were spent. One project that the monies were spent on in Brazil was a large highway connecting the inner parts of Brazil with, with the coast, and that highway still does not function properly, from what I understand, because it was designed poorly and it floods when, um, when the rains come, and so it, it's not dependable. Billions of money were spent on that. Billions were spent on dams that don't work. Rainforests were slashed down and ruined, and our oxygen-generating uh, areas of the world were decimated by the very people that were saying that they wanted to save our ecology, save our biospheres, and keep 
the world safe for mankind. When you were invited to be a host, did you receive advance information about who the dignitaries were that would be present? No. I had no idea that those dignitaries were going to be there. All I knew was there were going to be people representing the interests of reindeer and the Arctic, where I wanted to get my son a job. Uh, when I got there, uh, the first night, I was invited to the opening uh, party that they had, and I noticed one of the name tags waiting for someone to pick it up was Eddie Rothschild. And I said, Rothschild? I wonder if the Rothschilds are here. And then that's when I checked the materials that were given to me, uh, the registration packet, uh, which contained booklets like this. This is our common future, by the way, according to the world elite. The people that are going to control the one world religion coming out of this, the one world banking system, the uh, one world government, uh, also have in mind that our common future is like these poor Ethiopians who have been turned against by their very own government. So uh, they, they passed out these booklets. These are, the, these are the lands that we're going to be losing to this bank. I'll get into that now. Um, but there were about 1,500 people, and um, then we went up to Estes Park after three days in Denver for f four days of shirt sleeve sessions. All right, well, under uh, Robert S. McNamara's uh, leadership in the 1960s, uh, an amassing of today $1.1 trillion in debt and accrued interest that cannot be paid back most of which cannot be paid back by these poor little third world countries, uh, has accumulated. $400 billion of this, according to David Rockefeller, he says that nearly $400 billion in debt is owed to a number of commercial banks, including his own bank, the Chase Manhattan. And uh, according to the Brazilian with whom I spoke there, who is very... Uh, who confided with me with the Brazilian situation, there is no way that they can pay these back. These loans are uncollectible. Now, most of this money is owed to the United States banking system. We have $150 billion in equity in our banks that can absorb the shock of the first $150 billion that is written off. And after that first $150 billion is written off, Charles, um, the next $750 billion is going to come out of the depositors' hands in the banks because the bank equity cannot handle those losses. So we have been propelled by the World Bank in our United States economy here that either way we lose. If we do not have a World Conservation Bank established as a result of this Congress that I went to that will take out this debt and refinance it, using the world's wilderness lands as collateral, and we'll get into that. If we do not have this World Conservation Bank, our U.S. economy will collapse. We are at the point of collapse now. The, the banking authorities that investigate banks are hammering our United States banks right now and saying, you have to write off this debt. This is uncollectible. The loans have gone into non-accrual, and the countries have already admitted that they cannot repay, and you have to uh, write this debt off. They can't write the debt off or we will go into financial collapse. Either way, you lose. They plan to create a super, super World Bank that's going to absorb all the debts that the World Bank has created and 
and then uh, from a basis. Every bank has to have capitalization. Now, it might be the, net, the equity that, that people that start the bank pump into the bank and say, here's 100000 from me and 100000 from this guy, and let's then loan it out and get this bank going. Well, the collateral in this bank is going to be the 34% of the Earth's surface, the Earth's land surface. Michael Sweetman, who is designated by Edmund de Rothschild as the World Conservation Bank president. I had lunch with Michael, and I said, Michael, I have analyzed what I've heard in this Congress up to this point, and at this point, I cannot see how this bank can survive, because I, as an accountant, always look for an earnings engine in the capital statement, in the capitalization of the bank, something that's going to produce interest, dividends, earnings to keep the bank running and pay the employees and so on, and I don't see it in this bank. I see collateralization coming from worthless wilderness lands, and that's why they're wilderness lands, because nobody can get any economic order out of it. What's going on, Michael? And he said, we're working on that. I said, you don't have an answer as to how this bank is going to survive, and you're going to the IMF World Bank Congress at the end of this month? I had luncheon with Michael, or with Michael Sweetman and, and uh, Baron and Mrs. Rothschild. Um, I, um, I laid out my fears to the table at which I was sitting, and I received confirmation from a World Bank authority, who I cannot say, I cannot say their name, but they confirmed that my suspicions were correct. The United States is going to go down the tubes very shortly. When? Uh, would you put on that tape by John D. Rockefeller IV, February 1st, 1988? I don't know what happened in 1988, but I do know in 1988 that we've got to lay our base for either this year or surely for next year. Because all of those people who are out there running for president are making the largest mistake of their personal and professional lives because when one of them gets inaugurated in 1989, all of the chickens are coming home to roost. And it is going to be an extraordinary year of reckoning. Uh, a reckoning in terms of the budget process, of bold action. It'll be the time for it because it'll be a new administration and all kinds of old habits are going to have to go out the window if we are to survive as a nation. And I believe right. I, it's that serious, and you know it. We have the only dollar that's worth anything is what Rothschild is going to tell the United States economists. Our world conservation dollar is the only dollar that's worth anything because it's the only one that's capitalized and it has value behind it. But you know as of this meeting that there's no value in wilderness lands and you also know at this meeting that there is no earnings engine in the World Conservation Bank. In other words, it is a fraudulent bank. Remember when Esau said, to Jacob, I'm really hungry, and I need, I want some of that pottage that you have there. And Jacob said, Will you give me your birthright for it? And that was the first known swap. That was a counter trade transaction. And through counter trade, Rothschild and his bevy of bankers are going to debt swap and counter trade the United States. Every one of us, every city, every town, every state, every bit of wealth is going to be counter-traded out of the country into the Royal Bank of Canada, which is the, the collection basin for the uh, American uh, swapping activities. They're going to come along and say, you can't pay your mortgage and you're down on your knees and you're going to lose your farm, here, take a World Conservation Bank loan. You, five, years to, five years before the first payment, 
and the payments are low and it's only 3% interest and you'll be helping Mother Earth. And that's another aspect of this thing. It's going to be a religious pride thing. Hitler came along touting uh, the Fatherland. Well, we're going to hear something even bigger than that. These guys are going to sell this World Conservation Bank as something that is helping Gaia, Mother Earth, because there's a Mother Earth religious cult coming out of this thing, too. You do not have a wilderness congress and uh, suddenly discover James Baker, who is the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States of America, uh, Mr. David Rockefeller, who um, has been uh, rather out of the news for the last two or three years, but uh, suddenly appears at a wilderness congress, um, Mr. Rothschild, one of the foremost uh, bankers of the world, appears there. Uh, what I hear you saying is, it's a big cover for a plan to save the wealth of the wealthy? Is that what's going on here? Is it that the powerful people in the world, beyond any uh, philanthropic uh, feelings or motives they might have, is it that the powerful, wealthy people of the world have designed a plan that will save their wealth and power? Is that what I hear you say? Yes, the World Conservation Bank is going to be the decoupling mechanism for the wealthy to disengage themselves from capitalism and go to the back of the bank, so to speak, and become the creditors of the bank and then wind up as the world's uh, dictators. Thank you, Charles Wheeling of Countdown Ministries for this valuable interview. Brothers and sisters, this information you are viewing is factual. The World Conservation Bank scheme can unfold in different ways, but all paths lead to the collectivization of the world's people into a dictatorship by the elite. When the United States-Canadian Free Trade Agreement was signed, the World Conservation Bank was formally put into second gear, as instructions to the country's treasuries were embedded in the agreement to pursue the possibility of establishing this bank. Debt for nature and debt for conservation swaps are already being carried out in Ecuador and other countries, so things are rolling. And now to the next part, currency matters. Soft currencies can be created by this bank and converted into hard currencies. Uh, and that is, we can be debt swapped by Brazil and the people that control Brazil against our, what we have left in our treasuries, which isn't very much. They'll take soft currency created by an enactment and trade it for um, uh, goods and services out of the United States, pay us in the soft currency, and the soft currency then will become de facto hard currency in the United States, creating terrific inflation for us. We now have a, current, a world currency dollar that's under the manipulation of the Rothschilds because, as you probably know, the Rothschild family sets the price of gold in London. And now the price of gold will be a determinant on the value of currencies. The Rothschild family also owns the eastern oil, and the Rockefellers own the western oil, and oil will be a determinant in this basket of goods in the new currency system. So we have 
families now that are controlling our currency. And the Rothschild said 150 years ago, whoever controls the currency of the country controls the wealth of the people and therefore controls the people. So the economy here will collapse. It's only a matter of time, and it's a matter of design. Mm -hmm. This gentleman uh, finally, after some lengthy discussion, said, I'm Canadian. I'm on assignment over here on your side of the border. I work for the Canadian Treasury. There's new money, you know. We have it all printed. It's in the vaults and in warehouses in Canada. Oh, Canada. I'm trying to put all of this conversation together with what I'm hearing you say here this evening. The Royal Bank of Canada, perhaps. He simply said, this gentleman told me that Americans did not have the expertise nor experience to print colored currency, that uh, this was being printed by contract in Canada, wow. had been printed, and is uh, presently being held in large warehouses um, awaiting the proper time for distribution. The next thing we're going to listen to is Baron Edmund de Rothschild. Well, this is going to be called a new Magna Carta, too, this, this uh, World Bank uh, program. All these enactments are going to be given the title of the new Magna Carta. In the old Magna Carta, it gave baronial rights land rights to barons in England. And, and, uh, and in the new Magna Carta, it's going to be given baronial land rights to the world for Baron Edmund de Rothschild. We're going to hear him now announce the creation of the International World Conservation Bank enactments, which will include a second Marshall Plan. That's what's going to bail us out here in the United States. It's going to include a third world debt relief, and it's going to include a new world currency system. Let's hear Baron Edmund de Rothschild. But perhaps this conference might like to think more about the Marshall Plan, which had been mooted and put forward very tentatively at the uh, Denver conference. And perhaps this might be the keynote of what you have heard today and what perhaps you might like in some perhaps amended form to have put forward. At this conference, recognizing the needs to protect our ecological and environmental heritage within the concept of the World Wilderness Congress, World Wildlife Fund and all other bodies involved in the preservation of life on our planet, Ask the Prime Minister of Norway, Right Honourable the Gro Harlem Brooklyn, as one of the world's leaders of a greatly respected community, to be the promoter of this International Conservation Bank. By her Brooklyn report, which has been widely circulated to world leaders, she could follow up this report with the recommendations to promote a second Marshall Plan the third world debt relief and finance for a stable development. That's it, folks. Those three pronouncements have set in motion a one world economic system with the United Nations becoming the legislative Congress, the Royal Bank of Canada being the banker the Federal Reserve of the world and 
the dictators of the world being that hub of, of people in London. London is the creator of the ills of mankind, I have learned, and the Commonwealth countries are the ones that have done us in. Some people might wonder why, if it's a matter of public record, people don't catch on to what's going on. And the problem is that the finances that are involved in all these balance sheets are so astronomical that people don't understand. And you have reporters that sit through these sessions and Rothschild speaks and he says, well, then this must be the best for us. And they don't understand what they are in, what, what's involved in these financial transactions. And by the time we do understand, it's going to be too late. And that's why they can make it a matter of public record. Has any of the American businessmen uh, or, uh, in the United States uh, have caught on to this, or there's nothing they could do, or are they just pawns under the Rockefeller system? Uh, They're pawns under the Rockefeller system. Um, D David Rockefeller uh, addressed the Council of Foreign Relations of Denver uh, on Monday. He spoke on Sunday at the Congress address the Council of Foreign Relations in Denver on Monday. Most of the world industrial leaders are represented in the Congress, uh, in the Council of Foreign Relations, which is a, a group of people that sw have sworn allegiance to the Babylonian money system that we have in the U.S., and they'll go along with anything that happens. There are very close, Unquestionably. Ties, very close ties between the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission. Yes. And uh, the historic plans and ideals of the Illuminati. Exactly. These, these are facts. I uh, personally believe that the old money system that we have, that we carry around right now in our billfold and in our pockets and purses, is, is going to be recalled as they recall the, the Franks after World War II. They recall the old money and issued new money. This is going to shake out a lot of Coke dealers that are stashing money aside. People are going to, the only way that they can get a new medium of exchange is to turn in all of their valuables and get it converted into new money. Old money will become verboten. I wouldn't think so. The store of value, um, I'd like to have silver and gold stashed away somewhere in a little hole in the ground. And uh, I imagine if Caesar, I'd be inclined to uh, want to disobey Caesar and, uh, and have my little stash of silver and gold. But, you know, then you, then you think about, well, now what if Joseph, Jesus' uh, uh, father in the flesh, uh, or the, you know, the temporary custodian of Jesus, would, would have uh, had that kind of mentality. He probably wouldn't have gone to Bethlehem uh, to uh, pay his taxes, okay? And he would have then violated God's laws and things would have come out differently. So I choose to obey the laws of the land as they stand as long as they don't violate my conscience. I found out that there is a blessing in obeying your authorities, as I learned at the Congress. It gave me a ticket to ride to be able to tell you all of this information because I obeyed my authorities. Good point. Now, Harry Schultz describes it in his international newsletter. Uh, here is um, what he says. 
my research and development indicates Japan is going to turn an already negative outlook into something bordering on horrendous. Tokyo may turn a bad global bear market into panic and depression. Uh, Tokyo is going to pop, according to this fellow. Their, their, their economy is so inflated and they are so fragile in Japan that they are the one that's going to set off the world panic, according to this chap. A, a person asked me, what about these people on government checks, Social Security? Well, all those things are going to be wiped out. All of your savings are going to be wiped out. Silver and gold is not going to save you. You're going to be either dependent upon the World Conservation Bank and the goodness of its officers to provide you with the living you need to sustain your life, or you are going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to sustain you. And that's going to be the decision. People are going to fish or cut bait onto whether they are going to worship the Lord Jesus Christ or not. Period. I mean, this is a spiritual, a spiritual dilemma that people are going to be put into. The bank really isn't going to be receiving real money from Brazil and so on, but they'll have the appearance of bringing it in. And then when the bank goes bankrupt, all of the mortgages of the world, which have been turned into the bank and counter-traded and debt-swapped, people haven't been able to make the mortgages on their Alabama Savings and Loan mortgage, so they have debt-swapped their Alabama Savings and Loan mortgage for a World Conservation Bank mortgage. The World Conservation Bank, to put it succinctly, is going to own mortgages on all of the wealth of nations throughout the whole world. And when the bank goes bankrupt, the creditors of the bank, as is done in international law, will move into the bank and take over its operation and will take all accounts receivable owed to that bank, which are your mortgages and my mortgage and the, the wealth of nations. Uh, the cities won't be able to pay their debts. They're going to get deeper and deeper into debt to the World Conservation Bank, so they'll own New York City, they'll own Boulder, Colorado, they'll own Birmingham, Alabama, and the creditors will move in and take over all of those mortgages, and the very wealthy, the wealthy elite of the world will have counter-traded bad world conservation dollars in for the claims on the real wealth of nations, and when the bank goes bankrupt, we will wind up serving the people who are capitalists today. People who pull the strings. The people who pull the strings. The World Conservation Bank will be used as a decoupling mechanism for the capitalists to become socialists. It's a dirty trick. We've got now the weird experience of listening to David Lang, personal friend of I. Michael Sweetman, who is a superb elitist who says that the cannon fodder doesn't really need to get involved in this bank. Let's play that. When the auditor finally gets his hands into the balance sheet. I suggest, therefore, that this be sold not through a democratic process. That would take too long and devour far too much of the funds to educate the cannon fodder, unfortunately, which populates the earth. We have to take almost an elitist program that we can see beyond our swollen bellies and look to the future in time frames and in results 
which are not easily understood or which can be, with intellectual honesty, be reduced down to some kind of simplistic definition. That, okay, and if you go up to 212, David Lang, Ace, I would hope that he wants to set up a fraudulent situation to create currency to help the developed countries seem to be paying off their loans. Go ahead. Initial capital base so that the income in local currencies from that capital base could be used without encroaching on capital. Those obviously are very high ideals and maybe they're not realizable. But I fear that if you don't strive for that as your objective, all the good work, all the good wishes, and all the good money will very quickly come to nothing. Thank you. Okay. Now the reason, what he said there is you have a capital base that the bank creates wealth from all of these world wilderness lands, uh, and that is the capital base that the countries use to, for their for their currency and to get the countries running again. And then he wants to create additional currency beyond the capital base in the amount of the interest and loans that will have to be paid off by these countries to give the bank an appearance of profitability. But it won't be profitable. I know it's obscure and esoteric, but I was able to catch on to that. And nobody there really caught on to it. I spoke to the to one of the reporters of a large newspaper. I was sitting uh, uh, with him, and I said, have you caught on yet of what's really going on at this Congress? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, don't you realize that there is a one world dollar that's being set up right in front of us? At this? No, I've missed it. So I explained to him using, using, uh, using accounting T accounts to show the capitalization of the bank and how currencies are gonna be created. And, and uh, he said, is that really going on? Well, I saw him a few weeks ago, and he still really couldn't figure it out. <laughs> it is very difficult to figure out the riddles and deals that they're setting up in this world system. They don't realize that God has known these schemes from the foundation of the world. Their deluded minds hatch the very plans which God will use in the end times for the salvation of millions of souls. God will have the last laugh, and as he wipes the tears from our eyes, we will rejoice with him. Tribulation must come for a little while. Our Redeemer will win the victory, though it might seem we are losing a few battles. Give your anxiety and fear to him as these plans unfold. Trust him. We will now see some of the plans for establishing a world religion. A counterfeit Christ is ready to emerge out of the Catholic, Protestant, and mystic religions. Tell us a bit about uh, this large, very large ranch in uh, southern Colorado. Who's the owner? What's the connection with what you learned at this Congress? and? All right. There's a real interesting fellow that sat to the right of Michael Sweetman at the World Conservation Bank Caucus, and his name is Maurice Strong, M-A-U-R-I-C-E, Maurice Strong. And he and his wife, Hannah Strong, uh, own the Baca. It, it was an old Spanish land-grant ranch in Crestone, Colorado, down in the San Luis Valley, 
on one side of the ranch to the west, to the east, it's on the western slope, to the, to the east of the ranch are the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, the Blood of Christ Mountains, and to the northwest of the ranch are the San Juan, the St. John Mountains, and water flows from these mountains into the San Luis Valley, and there are great underground streams that feed the Rio Grande River um, and the, uh, uh, the Arkansas River and all of these. It's, it's the headlands of waters. So they have a 160,000-acre ranch. Some folks have said 130,000 acres. And this ranch is on, um, it's right on the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. And in this ranch are spiritual, world spiritual um, ashrams from India, England. The Catholics have a monastery there. Um, and uh, the Episcopal Church, of which I am a member, uh, has a representative there called Lindisfarne, which it turns out is, is, uh, in, is probably the Protestant representative of bringing Catholic, Protestant, and spiritual religions together at this ranch. Because on this ranch is a temple that was built by the Lindisfarne fellows in conformance with Babylonic numerology systems. Lots of sixes are in there. Uh, there are 72 seats, for instance, six times six times two, uh, where, where the leaders of the world religions sit around in a rosy cross. If you look down at it, the, the, middle of, uh, the Holy Grail is in the middle of the temple, and surrounding the Holy Grail is a Rosicrucian, a Rosicrucian Babylonic system seating arrangement where they are going to incantate during the sexual union of God the Father and Mother Earth. I happened to talk to the priest there, uh, Father Victor, last week. I said, what is your mission here on the Baca with this, with this uh, monastery? Doesn't it give you um, a feeling of insecurity to know that there's a temple up there that's going to commune God with Mother Earth and you have all these Eastern religions around and he said no he said we just sit here at this, in this monastery and contemplate and we're not concerned about that I said well what do you contemplate on and he said we contemplate on the sexual union of the church with God I said wait a minute say that again he said, we contemplate on the sexuality of the church as it's expressed in the Song of Songs. I said, well, I'll admit that, that it is a real love poem of Christ for the church, but why the sexual union and so on? He said, that's our mission. He said, because we're fulfilling a, a, a role that the Pope wants us to fulfill. He said, I don't know. We're just contemplating on the sexual union of, of the church with God. I said, could it have anything to do with the Lindisfarne Temple that's been built there by the Episcopal Church, by the Protestant sector, where they're going to have a so-called sexual union of God with Mother Earth? And are the Catholics providing contemplation into the sexual union? He said, I don't know anything about that. I said, you've been here for a year and a half and you don't know what's going on in this place here? And he professed ignorance about it. Well. If you just read the papers, he'd see that marks are being put on people's forehead with the ashes from ancient fire ceremonies at the Baca. 
there's going to be a Mother Earth worship system that's then going to be connected with ecological and environmental laws. William Ruckelshaus, the president, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, here, here he is shown in a, an official photograph from the Congress. Here's the fourth world wilderness flag behind him. There's William Ruckelshaus, the head of the EPA, and there's David Rockefeller, the head of the Chase Manhattan Bank. He was called at the Congress Mr. Environment. He's vice president of uh, Weyerhaeuser Lumber, and it's suddenly he's a Mr. Environment. That's one of the funny things you see happen in the world system. And then here is Mr. Development, uh, David Rockefeller, and these two people are having a, a great struggle with one another. He wants to protect the environment, and he wants to uh, go for growth and development. It's an equation that was presented at the Congress. Conservation versus growth and development. We have to equate these. So, William Ruckelshaus is down as a fellow shareholder in American Water Development Incorporated that he, uh, he and Morris Strong, the head of BACA, are, have a corporation where they want to suck the aquifers dry, the aquifers getting their water from the Blood of Christ Mountains and the San Juan Mountains down there. There's a lot of water in the San Luis Valley. Millions and millions of acre feet of water. An acre foot is the size of a football field, one foot high of water. And they want to pull 200,000 acre feet for openers out of the, the Baca. Well, here's Mr. Environment, and I did a survey of the people down in the San Luis Valley, and I sent letters out to these farmers last December, and I said, what will happen if Morris Strong and William Ruckelshaus and others pull water, 200,000 acre feet of water out of the San Luis Valley? Without one hesitation, it was unanimous that their, their land will turn into a wasteland. It'll turn into a desert. So here we have people at an environment congress that are then waltzing 200 miles south of Estes Park down in the San Luis Valley of Colorado that want to suck the, the aquifers dry and turn it into a desert. The, the hypocrisy is so deep. We are going to come under a satanic world government. And don't worry about it because I found out that God will provide what we can't provide for ourselves. If we're on his side. If we're on his side. That's right. We've already been given the marching orders for the tribulation period. It's called the New Testament. Paul went through it. He went through New Age back there in Rome. The temple of Osiris and the temple of Diana, the Ephesians, and so on. And he knows, he's told us that if we keep trusting God, he, God will take us through the tribulation. Not that we won't be killed or tortured or what have you, but it will be in God's timing. So I'm trusting that God will see us through the tribulation, and I choose not to get into fear because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. As a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, I'm reminded of a statement from the pen of one Ellen G. White. It was penned at least a hundred years ago. She was commenting upon Revelation chapter 13 and the subject of the mark of the beast. She said at that time, not all is understood yet with regards to the mark of the beast. 
nor will it be understood until the scroll unrolls. That is, until the very events foretold in the prophecies begin to take place. Until the stage of history is set. Until the men and powers and organizations and people come into place. Until the actors are on the stage. Then, she said, these things will be better understood. Then it is that the people of, people of God will be brought to decision, to a test. Now the same book of Revelation in the third chapter warns us that there is an hour of temptation that will come upon all the world. All the world. The same admonishment contains a promise that God will keep those who are faithful. Those who are obedient, those who have their confidence in their faith, secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has promised, I will keep you in the hour of temptation that will come upon all the world. He is a Viscount, uh, no, a Count from France, who's in charge of the uh, world religion broadcast for the world. Um, and um, in our conversation, he said, you people in America will know what the meaning of duty and sacrifice and service and discipline are. He said, you will work and know God through your discipline and duty and sacrifice. He said, you people in America are soft. You worry about your rights, rights, rights. He said, you will see what it is like not to have rights very soon. He said, you will meet God. And I said, what is God's name? He said, God, he is a mathematical formula. He is what I call the great ism. And he said, your dog, the table, you, me, we're all the same in this great ism. And he said, you will meet the great ism in your duty and your sacrifice. And he said, and then you will know God. And I said, you mean like, Eins, zwei, drei, vier, and I made a Nazi salute and a goose step, and he smiled knowingly, and as if to say, you got it, mister. Uh, we're going to be under a totalitarian, cruel regime here in the United States. And we will know what duty and service and discipline and lack of rights are. Most, if not all, religions and visionaries look to the time of the end. The Hopi Indians call it the Great Purification. Christians call it the Great Tribulation. Without Jesus, no person can stand through it all. So what good will it do us to worry and fret? Watch for Him. Trust Him. Cast all your cares on Jesus Christ. Read the Bible as the Holy Spirit leads you. I learned of Jesus Christ from the New Age, from Yogi Satchidananda, back in 1970. In the early 70s, Sri Swami Satchidananda had an ashram here in Boulder, Colorado. He used the Word of God to try to steer us into his own path. Just say, Om, to bring God into the present, I remember him saying. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just say, Om, and God is there, he said. What he failed to mention was John 1.14, in the same chapter of John 1.1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. 
He also claimed that Jesus Christ was just an avatar like everybody else. Hmm, I said to myself, why does he protest so much? One day I said the generic prayer. I was confused but wanted to know the truth. I recommend this prayer to all non-believers who may be watching this video. God, if you exist, would you please show me the path that I should go? I added, is the path Yogi Satchinananda, Yogi Bhajan, Mayor Baba, Krishna, Gaskin, Jesus Christ, will the real person please come into my life? A few days later, a little old woman who I had never met stepped up to me and said, I have been expecting you. I was surprised. I said, well, uh, uh, what's this all about? And she said, you were searching for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am to tell you what the Holy Spirit leads me to say and turn you back to the Holy Spirit. She had been praying in tongues, as she said, with a group of fellow believers. An aura settled around her, and her tongues were interpreted that a person who was seeking the Lord Jesus Christ was to come into her life in a few days. She was to tell that person about the Lord Jesus Christ as the words came to her, and then turn the person back to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You, she said, are that person. I can't remember what she said, but it burned like fire into my heart. Simultaneously, other nat supernatural coincidences were happening to me, and I finally knew that Jesus Christ was my path to follow. That was on February 14, 1971, and my wife Betsy accepted him through Don Ferguson of Boulder, Colorado, at the same time. He was our Bible-reading next-door neighbor. I believe that many in the New Age will come to the Lord Jesus Christ before the time of the Gentiles, so to speak, closes in God's preordained history. Be ye separate from New Age. Our separateness will become like a light in the darkness of, to them. I believe that their lives will become hell as the persecution of the church increases in tempo. We will learn love from our Lord and they will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. I will now end this video with various tapes from the Congress. Study your documentation manual. Read my licensing agreement in the manual and send it to me for my permission for you to take this videotape to others. Your financial support is always appreciated and I thank you for that. Here is my address if you need to contact me or make suggestions or need more information. This is an informational message from the Lord and I am his messenger. I take personal responsibility for the presentation of its contents. Goodbye, shalom, see you in the next life, if not sooner. This video will now end by playing the official tape of the Fourth World Wilderness Congress. In particular, you will hear the voice of Canadian Maurice Strong, the voice of Michael Sweetman, the World Conservation Bank president, and the voice of England's Edmund de Rothschild. Listen to what de Rothschild says about manufacturing dry ice machines and creating alternatives to dams. Ask yourself, too, how can a person harness love as Rothschild seems to propose to want to do? What does that really mean? If God is love, is de Rothschild suggesting that he harness God? And uh, I think we're going to have some very, uh, very interesting time over the next three days.
but not just an interesting time. I hope we're going to have a very productive time over the next three days. And we're going to come out uh, by tomorrow night, at any rate, with a resolution which we have to hand to the Resolutions Committee if we want a resolution about the World Conservation Bank in the Congress proceedings, and I, hope, I trust that we do. So we've got to think about that as well. I suggest what we might do is to cover that at the end of these two sessions this afternoon, and maybe some would like to, some of you might like to stay back and we could discuss how we um, proceed with that. So let's get the proceedings running now, and we will uh, see how we go. Thank you. Mr. Morris Strong, who most of you already know. Thank you very much, and you've already heard perhaps too much from me, so I think this is, we're reaching the point at which we want to involve you, all of you, in uh, the next step of this conference, which is really to come to grips with some of the principal action-oriented issues, and one of the most important initiatives that is uh, open here for your consideration is of that of the uh, uh, conservation banking program. Uh, as we mentioned this morning, we have as our chairman, fortunately, the person who really is the source of this very uh, significant uh, concept. Uh, he uh, he uh, uh, was, is one of the trustees of the International Wilderness Foundation, which sponsored this meeting. He, has, he was at the first of these congresses. So his conversion to the relationship between conservation and economic development uh, has been a, a, a pioneering one. His work on many dams. He's, you know, I used to be in the hydroelectric power part of the energy business myself. Uh, and uh, the, many of the energy developments we've seen have come from his early anticipation of our energy needs and his early work in supporting pioneering initiatives to deal with these needs. So there is no better person. He epitomizes in his own life that positive synthesis between environment, conservation on the one hand, and economics on the other. And I'm just delighted to have this opportunity of uh, introducing to you Edmund de Rothschild. Morris, thank you very much indeed for all that you've said uh, and uh, I would ask the audience to take with a slight grain of salt all that he has said about me. And I want to start there a little bit of my talk to you on a somewhat different vein. You see, in order to further the ideals of the world wilderness concept and to prevent the concept and this concept just to remain an ideal it is of paramount importance to find ways and means of finding and promoting its rationale. There are these ways and means of putting this concept into effect and overcoming or minimizing some of the problems set out by the speakers in this Congress, such as pollution, prevention of acid rain, waste disposal. There are alternative methods and are harmless alternative methods for energy, and they're available. Alternative uses of water resources not involving vast inundations of land or displacing humans and its indigent wildlife, harnessing wave energy, solar energy, wind power, just to mention a few. 
to overcome the chilling, doom-laden prognostications of Dr. Irving Mincer's greenhouse effect. Perhaps it could be possible to utilize CO2, carbon dioxide, one of its main causes, to manufacture dry ice to maintain the polar caps and the actual temperature of the ice there and maintain their present temperature. Innovative and modern technology, world waste material collected and perhaps burnt in volcanic areas or buried so deep in the earth in the wilderness desert areas of the mid-Sahara where nobody goes or in the empty quarter in Arabia or the Gobi Desert. But all these ideas and visions, some far-fetched and above all, the continuation of this Congress needs money. A start has been made by the thoughts and care of one man. Michael Sweetman, his ideas have had lip service paid to them by some of our speakers here during the Ken Denver conference. The meetings now of the new concept of an international conservative banking, conservation banking program involves all sectors of the human community, governmental and intergovernmental agencies, the public and private agencies, large charitable foundations, as well as ordinary individuals worldwide. Michael Sweetman has written the foreword to this concept. Its final form will no doubt be altered, watered down, or widened. But this convention must put forward this charter. And with the collective wisdom available here today, the charter can be enhanced, embracing those who have given their thoughts in the Denver Public Forum. By thinking forward as to how to reach out to the public at large, to every corporate entity throughout the world, to put aside, hopefully tax-free, a part of their profits to fund our ecological and environmental protection. Ladies and gentlemen, every country has its own problems, its indigenous peoples and its wildlife. This International Conservation Bank must know no frontiers, no boundaries. Its funds must be used constructively and not, and not to be challenged into greedy hands or weapons of destruction. I hesitate to link this bank with world wilderness, but I would like to link it with our survival as a human race. This our generation must not be cursed by our descendants, if we have any, as to the greatest destructors and squanderers of the world's resources. That great philosopher and cleric, Tayyard de Chardin, wrote, and I quote, Man can harness the winds, the waves, and the tides, but when he can harness the energy of love, then for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. Michael Sweetman. Michael Sweetman, your love for the world wilderness concept has given you the necessary fire in your belly to produce the germ of the future needs of this concept. 
and I have great pleasure in asking you to put it forward. We trust that you found this uh, information to be educational and thought-provoking. If you'd like to contact Emissary Publications, you may do so by writing to Emissary Publications, Post Office Box 294, Colton, C-O-L-T-O-N, Oregon, 97017. The telephone number is area code 503-824-2050. If you'd like to check out our website, you may do so at emissarypublications.com. Both skyscrapers are on fire. The evacuations have been underway. That the United States on this day is under attack. Most did what they could to escape the rain of wreckage and smoke. Others ran toward the burning building. Emergency first responders hoping to rescue the wounded. Hospitals throughout New York stood by, but few patients arrived. Today, the casualties from 9-11 are finally showing up. Everyone praises the dead as heroes, as they should. But there are more living suffering than dead. Detective James Zadroga. I put my gear on and jumped on the bike and uh, raced to the uh, South Tower. And, uh, you know, when I got off the Brooklyn Bridge, it was pretty bad. As soon as we hit West Side Highway, it looked like a war scene. And at that point, basically all we could hear was, you know, sirens. And I said that I'm an EMT, I should go down and help out, do whatever we can. I was set up for triage down below for kind of walking wounded as they came out. I had called my wife and I said, Laurie, something bad has happened in Royal Manhattan. I just want to call you to tell you that I'm okay. And just as I said, I'm okay, the line, all the lines went dead. I looked and I just saw this wall of black and gray coming at me. They knocked the wind out of me. I laid there. I had to catch my breath. and trying to catch your breath. You, you, you're breathing in this black cloud. You know, at that point, you couldn't see. And uh, tried to clear up my eyes. You know, my eyes were burning. I was coughing. 
everybody was hacking and, and trying to get the stuff out of their eyes and everything because we don't know what the hell we just swallowed. And you were gagging. It would be, I'd show you this rag. If I shoved it down your throat, it would be the same thing. It was, you, you vomited, violently vomited from it. Grown men were crying in my arms, and uh, you know it was kind of it was a little difficult because I still didn't understand myself, you know, how serious it was. All I thought about was um, that I was going to die right there, and how uh, it's funny. Like I thought, I didn't think about God. I thought about how selfish I was to do what I do for a living, that now my wife is going to be a widow and my kids are going to be sorry. <clears throat> that my kids were going to be orphans, you know. The dust cloud and the dust and the... I'll never forget the, the quietness of um, the, new, the, the, the office papers just, you know, floating in the air. Three hundred and forty-three firefighters and paramedics were killed in the line of duty that day in Lower Manhattan. Seventy-eight police officers died. But hundreds of other uniformed men and women survived the worst attack ever suffered on American soil. At least, they thought they had survived. Open. You couldn't stop. You'd, you'd cough for like five minutes straight. You just couldn't stop coughing. You know, you'd try to fight it back, and it would just come. And this is the EpiPen that I carry. If I have an asthma attack and I'm not by uh, medication, I have to jab it into my thigh so I can get some relief. I was sick immediately. I spent uh, three days in Jamaica Hospital after 9-11 because I kept on having asthma attack after asthma attack. Do you have your other prescriptions? Did you pick them up? Which ones? The Levaxel. And I came home and I had a report back seven in the morning to see a police surgeon. No. So I just came home, I showered, and I laid down. And when I woke up, I was totally blind. In the wake of the attacks, President Bush immediately signed a major disaster declaration activating the FRP, the Federal Response Plan. I want the entire country to know that of all of the employees at FEMA, everyone is absolutely working their hardest to do everything they can to bring all the federal resources to bear on this desperate situation. The Homeland Security Rules and Presidential Decision Directive 62 uh, mandates that the Environmental Protection Agency be the lead agency for the activities where there's a terrorist attack as it relates to environmental protection. Oh, I'm sorry. Christy Todd Whitman, the administrator of EPA, went to New York City and addressed the people there. We've had concern we're going to continue to monitor, but right now, as I will tell you, everything we're getting back from the sampling that we're doing is below background levels. There is not a reason for the general public to be concerned. It's not going to be a particular unless you have breathing difficulties, heart condition, then you just shouldn't be out here walking around and trying 
get exercise, so that's not appropriate, obviously. Anybody with uh, half a brain would probably look at that cloud and say, this can't be good for you. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you're called to war, you don't say, well, I, I'm not going in there, you just go. But what exactly was in that burning pile where the World Trade Center once stood? According to final studies later published by the EPA and other government agencies, a devastating toxic soup containing more than 2,500 contaminants. Asbestos fibers, once inhaled, cannot be expelled by the lungs and cause various cancers. Benzene, another carcinogen, suppresses the immune system and can cause leukemia. Mercury is toxic to the nervous system and especially the kidneys. Lead and cadmium are toxic to the respiratory tract and can also cause irreparable kidney damage. Polycystic aromatic hydrocarbons are the chemicals in cigarettes that cause lung, laryngeal, and mouth and throat cancer. PCBs commonly cause severe skin rashes and can also cause liver damage. Tiny particulates in the dust itself lodge in the heart, causing ischemic heart disease, often fatal. You see two 110-story buildings collapse and nothing's more than small little pieces. Uh, where did the asbestos go? Where did all the concrete dust go? Where did all the fiberglass go? Where did all this go? And anybody could see that it went into the air. We had seen people being dragged off that pile, eyes streaming, gasping and coughing and choking for breath. We knew very well that people were being exposed to irritant materials as well as cancer-causing agents, really from the start. And probably had um, health consequences that are unlikely to have been faced in other disasters. The EPA was quick to reassure everyone that the air was safe. Like right now, we're not getting any elevated levels that indicate concern. But given the chaos of those first days, how much could the EPA have really known about the contents of that chemical soup? In the early days, it was difficult for EPA to have access. The folks who wanted to go in and set up the monitors didn't have access. There were problems with electricity. There were problems because the equipment was not available, nor were the analysts available to do the work in the first few days following the collapse of the World Trade Center. So far, we have done over two dozen air samples. We're doing air monitoring, constant air monitoring. We've taken dust samples. In fact, by September 13th, the EPA had taken only 10 ambient air samples in Lower Manhattan, according to the EPA's own data published later. Well, if there's any good news out of all this, it's that uh, everything we've tested for, which includes asbestos, lead, and VOCs, have been below any level of concern for the general public health. Certain toxins had not been tested. There were other contaminants of potential concern, and those included PCBs, PAHs, dioxin, and I believe some other metals. You cannot find what you don't look for. Uh, this is true, and um, the agency could have done a much better job of looking. It's not a health concern. Now, it's not nice. I'm not saying this smells nice. I'm not saying this is nice. 
but from a real health problem, we don't have to worry. But according to a report later issued by its inspector general, the EPA's reassuring public statements that week were not based on science. They were based on White House policy. The White House, the Council on Environmental Quality, EPA, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration worked together on the press releases. The White House had the final word, so EPA did not feel that it had ownership of those press releases. The White House Council on Environmental Quality is headed by James Connaughton, who was not a scientist. He had been appointed to his post by President Bush only months before 9-11. His previous experience? representing large corporations in disputes about cleaning toxic waste sites, working against the EPA. White House uh, Council on Environmental Quality is not on this. They're not even a part. They shouldn't have been involved at all. We were told that CEQ had a desire to protect the national security and to get Wall Street open, and that was the reason that the press releases were changed. The original title of the EPA's September 13th press release was subtitled Testing Terrorized Sites for Environmental Hazards. The subtitle after the CEQ's revisions reassures public about environmental hazards. The original draft of the EPA's September 16th press release noted several debris samples that showed levels of asbestos ranging from 2.1 to 3.3% explaining that anything above 1% is defined as asbestos-containing material. At that point, the area should have been evacuated because we had a presumed assumption of hazard, and then testing should be, have been done and people allowed back in. Instead, when the statement was released, the CEQ had changed the wording. The debris samples were now described as containing small percentages of asbestos, slightly above the 1% trigger for defining asbestos material. Our work showed that more than 25% of the samples exceeded the 1% benchmark for asbestos. That's not a health-based benchmark. In fact, an EPA expert testified after 9-11 that a half a percent can be just as dangerous as 20% this one is wonderful. This, is, this was deleted from, from the draft. The concern raised by these samples would be for the workers at the cleanup site and for those workers who might be returning to their offices on Monday, September 17th. So you take out the part where people are told that they need to be concerned. When the president visited Ground Zero on that first weekend, his message was clear. This was not a time for caution, but for action. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. President of the United States, made a PR visit to Ground Zero and didn't wear his respirator, giving the false impression to the people that it was safe not to wear a respirator. President of the United States himself gave that false impression.
there appeared to be a great motive to return everything back to normal as quickly as possible, uh, particularly in the financial district. I'm looking forward to getting back to work. Do you know the condition of your office? I believe we're fine. I've been told we're fine. I live down here. I haven't been back home, but I know that it'll be fine. We're told that they have checked the air quality and that it's all right, but uh, I'm always dubious about something like that. I'm hoping it's all right. I'm not happy being in the area. Ladies and gentlemen, our heroes will now open the marketplace. The green button. On September 18th, EPA Administrator Christine Whitman released a sweeping statement clearly designed to get America back to work, saying, Given the scope of the tragedy from last week, I am glad to reassure the people of New York and Washington, D.C. that their air is safe to breathe. I was horrified. We knew that she couldn't have been addressing all the irritants that were present in the air, and we knew that very little monitoring had been done at that, at that time. And I strongly suspected that it had economic and political motivations rather than it being based on a real concern for public health. The air quality is safe and acceptable. And um, I know there are people that are concerned about it and people that um, are worried about it, but that, that's, um, that's just the reality. If the mayor says it's okay, then I believe him. It's okay. With Wall Street open for business, others who work in the area were expected to return to their jobs. People were brought back into contaminated areas when they should not have been. They were put at tremendous risk. And when we returned to the offices, there was dust all over the inside. There were three to five inches of dust on the window seals, and the windows were old anyway. So the dust kept seeping in, in through the windows. We were stuck with that for six months. And at the beginning of the disaster, a number of my colleagues were walking around at work, like me, wearing a heap of respirator on their face. But you can imagine trying to talk on the telephone and practice law when you're wearing one of these. I sound like Darth Vader, frankly, when I'm wearing one of these. Within months, workers in the area began to report respiratory illnesses. And they were being transferred out or relocated because they were coming down with asthma. Sometime in January, I started with the nosebleeds. And then I started to get this soreness in my chest. At this point, I have become allergic to every known antibiotic. I have had so many episodes of bronchitis and pneumonia that I am now allergic to everything. At Ground Zero, an army of workers and volunteers, over 5,000 people per day, began a cleanup process that would last for months. Below their feet, the fires continued to smolder until December of 2001. We had a slow-motion incinerator that for three months burned at ground level, turning computer parts and so on into a fine aerosol the people above it were breathing. It was laughable to police officers and firefighters on that pile to say the air was safe to breathe. There was particles in the air for months after. I personally feel that once the situation had come where there were no more people to be rescued, they should have put a barbed wire fence around the entire site and then put the fires out. 
Why the heck was there this enormous rush to clean the site up? For heaven's sake, make the site safe and then clean it up. I went down in the pit to, to tunnel rat and look for victims and I started, uh, I was suffocating and I thought, how ironic that I, I beat that building, that I survived and, and I'm going to suffocate in this hole because I thought I was dying. I was not given a, a respirator. I don't know if anybody in my firehouse was given a respirator. If they were, they weren't working with me. We were not equipped with the proper breathing equipment. Just to start, the basic protections that you would see on a construction site or any kind of place with its materials in the air, we did not have them. And we never had the proper materials for weeks and weeks after that. I was given a respirator, I think, when I went in February. And it was cumbersome. It just got in your way. We were digging for, for bodies. We were digging, and it was hard work. I probably didn't wear it most of the time because they had told us that it was okay. When the White House sends a message out saying the air is clear, we tend to believe it. No one was allowed into the Pentagon cleanup without the proper respirators, without uh, washing down so there would not be air release. But in World Trade Center, it was totally opposite. People were allowed on-site without any protective gear or with paper masks or with the wrong respirators and were allowed to work with their respirators off. If they had told me and told my friends and told the cops and told the iron workers, you got to wear this or you're going to die, everybody would have worn it. You'd be a fool not to. It was months before any systematic decontamination procedures were put in place. You don't leave a site without doing a vehicle washdown, uh, without assuring that you're not literally taking the contamination from the site proper and, and spreading it. There was nothing about decontamination probably till November. I remember going to eat lunch someplace and they made us walk through a bath. That really brought it home to me, like, you know, why are they decontaminating us now? You know, it's a, it's a little late for this, isn't it? And, you know, they never told you, you know, throw your clothes in the garbage, wash them, wash them separately, you know. That was it. And, you know, to this day, that baffles me. I saw a couple of people walking around with uh, surgical masks and things of that sort, but I never got one. Detectives John Wolcott and Richard Volpe spent months combing through World Trade Center wreckage at the Fresh Kills landfill on Staten Island. We'd go out and with rakes and shovels and stuff and just go through all the debris looking for, you know, body parts and different things of that sort to uh, make identifications. The, the weird thing was it was very cold when we were up there. I believe it was, it was in the middle of the winter, but the ground wasn't frozen. The ground kind of like bubbled underneath your feet, which was kind of strange to me. Uh, like, that can't be healthy. You know, you're coughing a lot. I mean, for days after, we're coughing up blood and different things like that. After 9-11, I developed a cough, nasal congestion, burning in my ears really bad, and I really never thought about it. I went to the doctors. I tried not to go out sick. And then I went on vacation in 2004 with my family, uh, and I came back to my 40th birthday.
they told me I had a mass in my chest. And I'm not crying for myself. I cry for my family because I'm worried about them being without me. I can't breathe. My throat is constantly sore. I have mercury in my system and God knows what else. And this is short term. What will happen five to ten years from now? No one knows. Detective James Adroga. I expect that the health you know, sort of experts are really going to have a challenge to determine what's going on with these people over time. Uh, I went home and started to cut the grass. At one time I had to actually stop and sit down and catch my breath. And I knew that wasn't good. Because I could feel that I had like smoke inhalation and I coughed quite a bit and I coughed up a lot of bit, but I never felt better. Then one of my first patients, maybe the very first was John Graham, who was a health and safety expert for the Carpenters Union and also an EMT. He had developed very severe shortness of breath, chest tightness, wheezing, a full picture of asthma that we were afraid was going to occur among these responders. He also had clear evidence of sinus problems with severe headaches, nasal congestion, facial pressure, post-nasal drip. So he had the full picture of sinusitis as well. Nice and deep, please. Mouth open. Good. Slowly. In August of 2002, Dr. Stephen Levin and his colleagues at Mount Sinai Hospital launched a World Trade Center screening program. A little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Well, the screening program was established really as a way to evaluate people's health status as a result of what they had done and what they had been exposed to at Ground Zero um, and to make sure that people got referred for appropriate care. By the time the formal screening program ended in 2004, we had seen nearly 12,000, just a few shy of 12,000. In a way, John confirmed for us all of the concerns that we had about what this responder group was at risk for. That's a lot of pills. Uh, it's progressed. The asthma and the reactive airway disease and the burns in my esophagus and lungs were initial. And now with the sinuses and the reflux and the heart, are relatively new, I would say, in the last three to four months. I took my medicine, and I didn't have enough to eat. I was just back from the doctor, and I just getting sick. I don't think that I'm going to get much better than it is today. You know, I want to try to do it whatever I can to get whatever time I have left to be the most valuable. I have uh, obstructive airway disease. Um, from what I understand, it's, it's asthma, but it's not asthma. It's not my lungs, it's my airway. After going through the Mount Sinai 9-11 uh, monitoring program, they found uh, about a half a dozen uh, nodules on my lungs and uh, 
They found something on my kidney. For two years after he worked the pile, firefighter Tim Duffy avoided going to the doctor until an injury forced a visit. I knew because of my lung situation that I should stay away from them as long as possible, and I had stayed away. The fire department doctor just looked me straight in the eye and said, you're done. And I said, I can go home now? And he said, no, you're done. You're never going back to the firehouse. And I was crushed. I was crushed. It, it is what it is. You take this test, your lungs are bad, you're done. They kicked me off the job. I didn't look to get off the job. You know, you try to do the right thing for your family, you know. Um, trying to build them something here that when I'm gone, you know, that she has something. I don't think I'll ever be able to go back into the workforce. I'm such a liability. I don't know anybody that'd hire me medically. One doctor in particular came out and told me that, you know, unfortunately myself and the guys that were with me that day in digging, um, we were all going to come down with some form of cancer within 10, 5, 10, 15 years and we'd all be dead. Oh, we find out Thursday. Oh, okay. It's uh, about two or three times a week he goes to the doctor. I have uh, lung scarring. I have uh, growths that are getting bigger in my lungs. Uh, the beginning is emphysema. Long-term possibility is cancer. How are you feeling? Uh, considering very well. He suffers from um, pulmonary post-inflammatory bronchitis. It's a lot of scarring and um, inflammation that we think is attributable to uh, the uh, inhalation of the noxious dust. His lungs function only 60% of what we would predict for somebody his age and size. Uh, blood test, yeah, let me go get those blood tests. Okay. I was having chest pains and I, I had it rechecked and now I need a from perfect heart to a quadruple bypass which I'm having in a week or two. All right, I have your blood test. I thought that I was going to be able to tell you that your um, heart disease and your cholesterol problem is all genetic, but the blood tests really don't suggest that. So it, it really? suggests that there might be something else going on. You know, we could talk about diet, but um, I think we'll have to... Uh, Vegetarian. I know. I know. I've never smoked in my life. been a vegetarian over 30 years. Don't drink. Don't do drugs. Uh, 43, I'm having a quadruple bypass. What's causing that? And where'd that come from? If you die from being down at 9-11, of course it's not going to be chalked up to 9-11. It's a pre-existing condition. Excuse me. I, I don't buy it. You can see, as I'm taking it out, the dust is coming up. As time has gone on, I've had more symptomology, more illnesses. In 2003, I was hospitalized for three and a half weeks because they couldn't find out what was wrong with me. And they did a spinal tap to try to catch the toxins as they were moving through my system. And they weren't able to trace it. This, this is my sanity, coming out and dealing with the, the rose bushes. You know, you got to find beauty in something because when you're in pain every day, you got to have something to, to look forward to. 
I have nasal problems. I have <coughs> uh, the asthma. I have nerve damage. I have sciatica. I have limited use of my left side. Because I'm chemically sensitive because of all the stuff I was uh, <laughs> exposed to, the toxins I was exposed to down in 9-11, I had to strip all these walls down. I had to bleach them down, ammonia so I could put up a paint that was not going to cause me any type of reactions. And then the carpet has to be hypoallergenic and it's got special padding so the allergens don't get trapped. And here is my happy HEPA filter. It goes 24-7 because if I don't have the HEPA filter, I don't breathe too well. And the big thing with asthma at this point is it's enlarging people's hearts because when you have an asthma attack, it has to compensate for the fact that you can't breathe. So now people who have asthma down uh, at Ground Zero are worrying about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which all has to do with breathing. All EMS is left in the dust, just like that's left on here. It's all dust. All of us left in the dust. One of the EPA's federal mandates is to lead cleanup efforts following a toxic disaster. But they did not take responsibility for cleaning up inside the buildings near Ground Zero until May of 2002. How can you send people back into this area, into this community, and you ain't even tested the dust? Instead, the agency dispensed advice. If you go back home and you have a dusty environment, get yourself a certified asbestos um, cleanup operation to, to help you with it. Um, and if you've just got a minimal amount of dust, um, use wet mops, use wet cloths so that, you know, just in case there's anything there, you're getting it out. For the indoor air, there was some confusion. The EPA said that it did not uh, early on participate in the indoor air regulatory activities uh, because the city of New York said that it didn't want to help. Uh, that's what EPA said. The city of New York said that was wrong, that it would have accepted any help it could have gotten. to reopen the building. That was all part of the general spirit of the time, which was, let's show the terrorists, let's get back up into downtown, you know, get back up on the horse. They told us they cleaned the ventilation system. Everybody goes back into the building. The media show up. Look at these brave kids. Aren't they a model for us all? And then later we find out the ventilation system was not clean. So the kids are inhaling deeply this toxic dust. Um, there were signs of illness very early on. There were rashes, nosebleeds, new onset asthma that can last the rest of their lives, chronic sinusitis. Some of the kids were taking um, medication that included steroids, uh, and chemical bronchitis, chronic bronchitis. The list goes on and on. We know that there are people, both adults and children, who developed asthma as a result of coming back to that area too soon. We know that there are some people who are still working or living in environments that are still contaminated and this material can be resuspended into the air to cause additional health consequence. The residents who, who live near the area, who believe the government, run a high risk of health effects 
20 years down the line, including cancer. The, uh, the workers already are experiencing serious health effects from working there and believing EPA and the government. The obvious response was to presume that the area was heavily polluted and needed to be tested and cleaned. The EPA refused to make that presumption except for one place, the EPA's offices in the area. The EPA Region 2's offices were cleaned in an entirely different way than Ground Zero was, uh, and um, frankly more protectively. EPA did want to put some statements in some of those early press releases about how to do the cleanups, but that information was deleted from the press releases, again by CEQ. Now, obviously, if the EPA treated us the way they treated themselves, they would have cleaned up first and asked questions later. Just taking some dust samples, they sent it to the lab to analyze asbestos, lead, and several other toxins that are out there. Joel Kupferman is co-counsel in a class action lawsuit filed by a number of residents, office workers, students, and firefighters from Lower Manhattan. Hi, everybody. This is the, the suit names Christine Todd Whitman personally, as well as other EPA officials, claiming that they allowed thousands of people to return to their homes and workplaces in Lower Manhattan with no proper cleanup having occurred. Someone that lives at 150 Franklin Street, a person named Linda Caspi, came to us saying that she's really concerned about possible asbestos contamination. She lives on the top floor and we discovered dust right in the elevator shaft. Uh, we tested and we came up with 2.6% asbestos. And then the guy from EPA said, are you sure you didn't plant this here? And I said, plant it? <laughs> where would I find it? I, where would I find asbestos? You know. The Deutsche Bank building, right next to Ground Zero, was damaged beyond repair in the attacks and scheduled for demolition. Massive quantities of World Trade Center dust permeated the entire structure. Today I'm releasing documents that show extraordinary levels of contamination present in the Deutsche Bank building. It would be nothing short of criminal negligence if we do not make certain that this teardown is done correctly so that we don't risk thousands of additional cases of respiratory distress and other diseases. It's nothing you can just kind of vacuum and scrub up. So it, it's going to be a problem when they take that building down. And it's going to be just like deja vu all over again. The demolition has been indefinitely postponed. The toxic legacy of the World Trade Center remains piled inside. I got the kids with me, and I'm in uniform, and we're, we're on one of the higher levels, and we hear uh, the North Tower get hit, and we go over into the window and look at it, and the tower's on fire, and I'm like, oh my God, we got to get out of here, and as we go to leave, we look, and we see the airplane coming. We go to go hit the uh, stairs, and the stairs are just packed with people, and I'm trying to hold on to my two kids. And, you know, I'm looking, things getting closer and closer, and I'm yelling at everybody, you know, I got two kids, let them through, let them through. And then I hear a loud crash. And I wake up in a cold sweat. He doesn't go to sleep. He's afraid to go to sleep. He's still afraid to go to sleep. When you go to sleep, it's like I said, it's, 
It's like going into a haunted house, you know, a fun house. You never know what's going to jump out at you. Mm -hmm. right? It's like that falling asleep. It's like a, a waiting cat ready to pounce. Chris Bauman's bypass heart surgery has been successful, but recovery will be slow. Healing is doing fine. There's no infection. Uh, they had to crack open the sternum, remove the sternum, so that, that's got to heal. That takes uh, several months. While I was in there, I was having problems with my breathing. We actually met a specialist that's going to start looking into uh, my lung problems. and. Uh, I uh, had a uh, CAT scan done, and they had found two spots on it, so he's going to do further investigation on that once this is healed. This is August 18th of 2004. It's now 2006, and it's about $7,000 bills, but the people probably never paid. <laughs> well, it took four years, but they finally put me out on a uh, disability pension. I got some of my lung stuff in there. You got to fight. And it's like fighting for scraps from a dog, you know. Where'd you find that? I don't even know if those bills will take. I guess when the next collection is, it's going to the, the city looks at it as a bottom line financial situation. They have to reduce their liability. That's wrong. There's no police officer that's going to stand up and say, I'm sick and deserve a pension from September 11th. It's not the cut of our character. You're not going to find it. Where? Where? What they should be doing to these police officers that come in and say they're ill is to take them in, first off, treat them with respect, but then give them the treatment that they deserve. Money takes over people. You now that, that's basically what it came to with the government. You now let's get Wall Street going. Let's get the money flowing. Let's get the system flowing. And uh, you know, as people die off, oh well. Right now, I don't know. You now everything I had planned out, everything I had drawn out that I wanted to do. I, I looked at my future and I see a stop sign. I see a big stop sign. My 1199 union, I had insurance through there. Okay, this is the first cancellation of my benefits. It says it was canceled June 2nd, 2004. But if you look, the date that I got the letter was August 17th, 2004. They canceled my insurance two months prior to notifying me. They, they take it away, they give it back to me. They take it away, they give it back to me. They take it away, they give it back to me. And it's always, a, I'm tired of fighting. That's 20 grand worth of bills sitting there. That pile there is, oh, close to 10 grand. Workman's comp, you get $400 a week, and you get a check every two weeks when it shows up, if it shows up. I mean, right now, Workman's comp, um, they're two checks behind with me. I just got Social Security disability recently. That was a big fight. Everything that you try to do, whether it's an application process, or, or whether it's, it's a benefit that you're entitled to, you have to fight for. You know what? I'd love to go out and work. But you know what? Physically, I can't. On the, the morning of September 14th, I was on the pile on the South Tower. I saw an enormous swatch of red, and all of a sudden I called everybody, and five or six guys came around me. As, as, as we dug further, we had, we had seen white and then a, a corner of blue with a star, and the thing was enormous. 
it was the actual flag that was flying on top of the towers that came down. I got a commendation from President Bush. The four-man rescue team was recognized for recovering the flag. Mike McCormick has reactive airway disease, gastroesophageal reflux, nodules on his left lung, and chronic sinusitis. But in order to receive workman's compensation, a judge needs proof that he was even there, despite his citation from President Bush. Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth? Nothing but the truth, so I'll be done. So, my God, I was there from three hours from after the buildings went down, and I spent about two or three hours a day on the pile giving out supplies and so forth. Where did you sleep when you were down there? Down at Battery Park. In what, where, what facility? What type of facility? In the Humvee. In terms of awards, we'll make the following findings. From October 20, 2004 to date and continuing, the claimant will be paid at a rate of $200 per week. The claimant can be classified as having a permanent partial disability. After over a year and a half, Mike McCormick has finally won part of the workman's compensation coming to him. Others have not been so successful. Every time you go back for a review, it's three or four months. 90 days, 90 days, 90 days. Wow. It's years of 90 days. EMT technician John Graham has petitioned the workman's comp board three times. When I first started this, I was a lot more aggressive. I had a lot more strength, and now I see their plan. It's kind of like, wait, they'll go away because they'll lose their strength. And what is most horrible is that so many of our patients have had to fight for a year, two years, to get treatment money in addition to wage replacement, and then when they're successful, the maximum they can get is $400 a week. I'm angry. Um, I'm angry that... Um, People can't move quicker. You know, like Social Security, come on, guys. Are you going to give it to me post-mortem? John's mounting bills forced him to rent out his home to tenants. He moved into a basement next door. The last time we spoke, mm -hmm. he had a nice house right next right. door, right? Right. I'm not really, as you can see, I'm not really that uh, needy. I can, I can live just a little place to lay my head, but... It's still <coughs> very difficult. And this living situation I'm in now is not uh, any good for my health at all. It's cold, it's damp, it's unheated, it's unlit. It's, I guess it's pretty, it's close, it's close to homeless as you can get with still having a roof over your head. I'm on uh, medication to uh, lower the pressure of my kidneys. My kidneys have a tremendous amount of pressure on them and they've kind of um, imploded. Uh, they're bleeding and leaking protein and, and that kind of stuff. I don't want to live here. I mean, does living here make you depressed? Does being in this room make you depressed? Uh, uh, <laughs> the same kind of illnesses 
are seen in both groups, whether they came on 9-11 itself or came, let's say, at some point in latter October to join the rescue and recovery efforts. I believe it was like six or eight months after September 11. Basically, I was having chest pains and shortness of breath, and uh, they did blood work, and the blood work came out so bad that they thought it was a mistake. Detective Richard Volpe has contracted a rare kidney disease. Right now, I'm uh, well below 50% function in both my kidneys. Are they going to be able to do a transplant or help you? Well, they're going to, I mean, I'm going to have to be put on a list, but usually it takes about five years before they can find a donor. So I'll probably end up on dialysis before. It's irreversible, the damage. Didn't really say His partner, Detective John Wolcott, went to the hospital after collapsing from shortness of breath. I found it very weird that I was asked uh, a whole handful of questions about was I ever exposed to radiation or benzene. And I never really put two and two together until somebody at the hospital says, I don't remember being exposed to benzene. That's an airline fuel. And all that green stuff you saw bubbling out in the landfill for months, that's radiation. He's been diagnosed with leukemia. It's hard, I mean. You know, my daughter wants that she's two years old, so she's active and she doesn't understand why I can't play with her 100% or whatever. I mean, it took seven months for me to even lift it. They're both guys in their late 30s. One has kidney failure, one has leukemia. The only thing they had in common other than being in immensely physically good shape and health, etc., is they worked for five months together hand-in-hand -hand at Fresh Kills. In September of 2004, David Warby filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of first responders who had fallen ill. And that has been the government response. Wait, deny, wait, deny, wait, deny. Back then, he had a few hundred clients. Today, the lawsuit includes over 8,100 police officers, firefighters, and rescue workers from 9-11, all of whom have fallen ill as a result of toiling in the toxic ruins. All of these array of blood cell cancers in the people I have who are alive, and some of the people I have, have, have whom are no longer alive, are statistically so overwhelming that it couldn't have been from anything else but this exposure. The suit specifically names the various companies hired by New York City to oversee the removal of 1.2 million tons of debris, claiming that more safety precautions should have been used to protect workers from the World Trade Center dust. When you have a carcinogen, such as benzene, and you have dioxin, which accelerates the carcinogen, and then you have lead and mercury, which act as immunosuppressants, all functioning at the same time, that which used to take 10 years to get in leukemia or cancer can take two years. Warby and his clients are seeking compensation and funding, not just to screen World Trade Center workers for illnesses, but to treat them as well. I think that there will be long-term health effects, everything from uh, mesothelioma, these uh, awful respiratory illnesses, cancers, uh, leukemia. Whoever held authority needs to be accountable for what was not done. They told me it was safe. They told thousands of my coworkers that it was safe. And they're all sick now. And they're not helping us. Well. You're talking to a Native American. <laughs> I once said, I think uh, a few weeks after having the job, uh, I, I let it slip. I said, oh, um, I didn't know the government uh, treats all people like Indians. <laughs> in the class action suit filed against Christine Whitman by those living and working in Lower Manhattan, 
There has been a development. There is not a reason for the general public to be concerned. In February of 2006, federal judge Deborah Betts denied the former EPA administrator immunity, writing that Whitman's deliberate and misleading statements made to the press shocks the conscience. Her landmark ruling sets a precedent for holding federal officials personally responsible for making official statements that might endanger the public. All of us know that many, many people lost their lives on 9-11, yet many, many more lost their health. This is a long-term problem. Thousands are sick today, and they will probably need care for decades to come. Rescue workers in the future will be influenced by how the rescue workers were treated. If they learn that you run to a fire and you risk your life and you become sick and there's no medical care for you, I, I think that's a very dangerous message to put out to the American rescue uh, volunteer and professional field. They don't want to acknowledge the sick who are living. I'm not the only one out there. Detective James Adroga. Can you welcome Joseph Adroga? Thank you. Uh, I hope I can get through this. <clears throat> I'm the father of James Adroga, who was my son, but mostly he was my best friend. <clears throat> On 9-11, he arrived home to tell his wife that the towers were just struck. He told his wife, who was seven months pregnant, with a child that he had to return to work. James stated to me many times that was one of the hardest things he could ever do. But he told her it was his job and he had to go and he could never live with himself if he did it. Detective James Adroga worked almost 500 hours at Ground Zero with virtually no protection. You know, a paper mask did absolutely nothing. He said within five minutes they were clogged up or he sweated, and he said half the time he couldn't even wear it. He said because it just didn't last. Uh, he he did express one story to me that he saw a, a lieutenant driver walking by with five masks and he, uh, respirators, and he asked her, the lieutenant could have one of the respirators, and the re lieutenant said, no, this is, uh, I can't give you one, this is for the brass, you know. He started to develop, as they called the World Trade Center, cough in October, which was roughly a month later. He started coughing, going to the doctor, thinking he had a, you know, cold or flu or croup or whatever. Uh, you know, he's doing nebulizer three times a day. He was a acid reflux. He had uh, stomach problems. He had throat problems. He had short-term memory loss at this time. On January 5th, 2006, detectives of Droga succumb to black lung disease. When I went upstairs that morning on the 5th, I saw him laying on the floor. I mean, I knew right away he was dead. As soon as I opened the door, uh, the baby was fell asleep in his room that night on the bed, watching television with him. So she was on the bed. I was on the floor with him. And the baby wakes up and said, what's the matter? And I said, your father's gone. <sighs> Excuse me. James Adroga's death 
was widely reported as the first fatality officially linked to toxic exposure at ground zero. Many do not believe that he was the first and fear he will not be the last. What's scary about that is that we all spent time down there and after Felix passed away and now Debbie and numerous others, um, we're all pretty frightened as to who's next. We've had deaths we don't want anymore. We have sicknesses we want no more. We want the information so that we can make educated medical decisions. This is an outrage to treat people this way. Not to be able to make sure that they are taken care of, to watch their lives be disrupted, turned upside down, watch them worry about whether they're going to be able to pay the mortgage, whether they're going to be able to keep their kids in school. These people deserve better than that. Stop the lies. Please, stop lying to people. Um, I know it would have cost more money to do it differently. I know it would have cost more money, and maybe it wouldn't have been in the best interest of the security of the country to keep Wall Street closed for another couple of weeks and, and that kind of stuff, but it's not fair to kill people. Yeah, we were basically ignored and forgotten. I don't know. The old stand behind your president no matter what because he's the leader of your country has been changed in my mind. I, I still believe you respect the title, but you can't respect the man anymore. We're neglected. We're absolutely neglected. We are the dust that they're trying to sweep away and hope it's going to blow away. We have become the lost souls and the dust that are still left at ground zero. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.